0: Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it.
1: Hello, Simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn and I'm Ryan Nicodemus and together we are The Minimalists. Oh, what a beautiful day we have here today. What a beautiful day to talk about guilt. Mm-hmm. We have Alabama in the studio. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman. It is the season to be jolly. Um, <laughs> we have a very special guest here as well. We're going to unveil her in a moment. All right. Coming up on this maximal edition, we have a whole lot to talk about. We'll check in with the live stream, the Patreon live stream, here in a little bit. We're talking about guilt and anxiety and self healing. We got so much to talk about today. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers. You keep our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because say it with me, y'all. Advertisements suck. suck. Yes, they do. Let's thank you, our- patrons. Let's start with our callers, Ryan. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Colleen.
2: Hi, my name is Colleen. I'm a Patreon subscriber from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. For a little bit of background, I uh, was diagnosed with severe degenerative disc disease early in my 20s. And according to my doctor, I have the back of an 87-year-old. So this is kind of a little frame of, of why I'm asking the questions that I am. So the first being, how can I release the guilt that I feel when others, like specifically my husband, want to help me and and really end up pulling a bit more of the weight because I can't do certain things, um, like bending and and that sort of thing are very difficult for me. And the second being, I I worry that in some ways I'm not the involved parent because I can't run around with my daughter. I can't run around with the baby that is on the way here in November. And I struggle with that. Um, I don't want them to remember that when they get older, that mom couldn't run around. So I just really am looking for some ways to poke holes in both of these feelings that I'm having as part of my chronic pain that I deal with daily.
1: Wow. Mm. Colleen, there's uh, Mm. there's a whole lot of weight here. And joining us in the studio to help us answer this question is former podcast guest and one of our favorite people in the world, Dr. Nicole LaPera is here. Yes. (laughs) So Dr. LaPera, you've got a new book out. We're going to be talking about it. And I think this is the perfect opportunity to to, I'll hold it up here. If you're watching the video version of the podcast, How to Meet Yourself. It's so... I love this because it's a workbook. Yeah. And whenever I usually think about workbooks, I'm like, oh, I feel like my daughter, whenever I'm forced to like, (laughs) I (laughs) hand homework over to her and she's like, oh no, I I think about, but then I I crack this open. I'm like, oh no, this is welcoming. This is completely different. And we're talking to Colleen here about guilt, the guilt that she's experiencing from, well, the... The, what she's setting up for other people in her life she's she's setting up sort of these expectations that she thinks other people might have of her and therefore she knows she can't meet those expectations and it is causing a lot of additional pain in her life. She's already experiencing pain. She has a back of an eighty seven year old which I can certainly relate to that. Mm. and um I broke my back when I was young and I had all kinds of back problems and i it's limited me in a way, right? But I found that freedom is sometimes found in the acceptance of our limitations. Mm. And you talk about these uh, things in, in the new workbook, but what insights do you have for Colleen?
0: Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you all for having me back on again. Uh, guilt is definitely something that I know very much through my own personal journey. I call it the feel-bads. I've been plagued with mm. them for as long as I can remember. And to speak to your very wise point, Joshua, oftentimes when we set up an expectation or we imagine others have expectations of us, often in our relationships, is when we end up feeling badly or feeling guilty. And to speak to your point in terms of acceptance and even feeling really near and dear, Colleen, to your question, um, having had myself a mother who was riddled with chronic pain and very much largely unable to be physically active with me, I really want to differentiate, again, going back to expectations. And Mm. it sounds like there's a lot of expectation around your physical abilities. And of course, that's a very difficult thing, I think, as our body declines at whatever age that is to throw away that expectation, to sit in the acceptance of the much more limited, you know, mobility that we might have. But I also want to offer how important presence in and of itself is outside of, you know, doing things with our children, our loved ones, or whomever that might be performing in a very real active way in our relationships. As far as I say it, being present to our Mm. children and thinking back And when I'm sharing about my own mom, not only was she physically not present for me emotionally and attentionally, she also wasn't present. And that Mm -hmm. attentional um, neglect or that, you know, disconnection that I suffered actually carried more of damage and and wounding for myself Mm -hmm. than her lack of physical presence. So Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, guilt, really unpacking first and foremost, what are the expectations that we have on ourselves outside of what we think other people are wanting us to do, mm. a lot of times we we suffer or create our own suffering because we have an idea of what it should or shouldn't be. And learning to accept our physical limitations, but also to explore other ways to be fully present with our children will probably be the gift that they are looking to have beyond you being physically able and capable.
1: It oh. seems to me that we show up and notice the ways in which we're unable to show up mm. as opposed to looking right. at how we can't... Look, I can't show up physically in this environment because of some limitation I have. But here are the seven other ways that I actually like, can be there. I can be there in terms of my attention, my emotional well-being, my stability, my support for this person. Ryan, this morning, you came barreling into the studio as, as he
3: usually does. Yes. There's, there's a, a cloud. Whatever. Of- I was five minutes early. <laughs> I left my house way too soon. No, Any- I came. Oh, go ahead. I so said you came in,
1: you said you were talking about the guilt that you had been feeling. And yeah. I wanted you to reveal that story to Nicole here because I thought she might have some nice insights on it.
3: Yeah. So um, I love what you're saying about being present. And when I am giving myself torment with guilt, it is completely taking me out of the moment. Right. So my problem with guilt is I go out of my way to like to think about all my past mistakes, the past things that I've done where I've wronged people, uh, you know, bad decisions I've made. And I like fester this guilt that I've already went through, by the way. So when I feel guilty, not only does it take me out of the moment, but it's also repeating the process that I already went through. So Mm. the other night, what I was excited about is I had this like huge revelation with my own guilt. So I'm laying in bed, I can't sleep. And that's for some reason, uh, mostly when all the guilt comes up. (laughs) And I'm starting to like beat myself up over some things. And I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? And I'm like, well, Ryan... You must like feeling guilty. And I'm like, no, that's stupid. Why would I like feeling guilty? Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, well, you consistently beat yourself up with it. You must feel like you're getting something out of it. And then it hit me. To me, my guilt is sanctimonious. I was programmed as a kid from a child, uh, as being raised um as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, which is just a very Christian religion. Fundamentalist. Fundamentalist. And I was taught that feeling guilty was a good thing. Virtuous. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. So um, as, soon as, I, as soon as I had that revelation where I'm like, oh, like this. it's not that I like feeling guilty as much as I like feeling virtuous. <laughs> and the more guilty I feel, then the more virtuous I must be. But as soon as I had that revelation, I was like, oh, like I don't have to beat myself up. And it was so much easier to like, even in that moment, it was easy to let go of a lot of that guilt. So you know when when I think about um Colleen's question here, it's not about um you know uh, uh, trying to look at every single thing that you can't do it's it's okay to feel guilty don't stew in that guilt because it's taking you out of the moment and then there are other things you can do that um you know, where you can add value to other people's lives where instead she's kind of beating herself up feeling like she is m- maybe taking value. But that's yeah. kind of where I'm at with it now. It's like, okay, like if I feel guilty about something, like A, um, I need to stop doing things that make me feel guilty. That's step number one. And then, uh, yeah, step number two is like go out of my way to be the person that I want to be and and show up how I'm able to show up. And uh, yeah, it's like just, I mean, just like three days of this. Like I have not beat myself up, not nearly as much as what I used to. Hmm. Yeah.
0: You're saying something really wise in terms of the energy and attentional expenditure that happens when we are ruminating on anything, a guilt-inducing past event or whatever it might be and upsetting, you know, when we're oftentimes carrying our own suffering, when we're thinking about it. And to speak to your point, it often does happen when we don't have that external focus of the day's events and the endless distractions that many of us have. So at night, in the mornings, when our attention isn't elsewhere, we can really spin in our mind. And to speak to your point, it really is energy expenditure. It's attentional expenditure. It's removing the focus from being not only present, but being able to actualize our true thoughts and feelings. And this really maps onto the book in terms of when you say sanctimonious, a lot of times when we're feeling guilty, we're feeling guilty about an actual inner desire an instinct, mm, maybe yeah. an actual aspect of our authentic self. And yet, usually based on past experiences, conditioned reasons, areas, ex- circumstances, environments where it wasn't safe or where we weren't, you know, we didn't have the curious parent to allow us to express ourselves. we then limit and we're perception then managing in, in a way. We have an idea of what's moral, of what's sanctimonious, what's good, right, bad, or whatever it is, yeah. person. And then we use that as our touch point. And what we're really though doing is oftentimes suppressing actual aspects of our desires, our inner ones, our mm-hmm. longings, and ultimately things that make us us.
4: Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, uh, there was this episode of Fresh Off the Boat where uh, the, one of the lead characters <laughs> picks up his cousin at the airport And he reaches for his luggage and says, I got it. And then his cousin says, no, 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 I'll carry it. And he goes, no, I'll carry it. And the two of them start wrestling in the airport over who's (laughs) going to carry the luggage. They get to the door. One cousin runs to the door to be first to open it for the other. And the other races him and they trip over each other to be the guy who gets to open the door for the other guy. And the amusing thing about it is that both of these guys had this highly developed capacity to be generous but only if they were the ones who got to be generous. Mm. And love Mm. isn't measured just by our capacity to give, but also by our capacity to allow others to have Mm. the opportunity to give. It's like with compliments, right? So much easier to Mm. give one, But as soon as you try to give me one, I'm going to start putting up all sorts of defenses and explaining it away. My brother took me out one time um, and he reached for the check to pay for it. And I says, no, no, man, I got it. And he says, don't do that. I got it. And I go, no, 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 I got it. And he says, look, man, I love doing things for people. There's a special joy that I get out of it. When you refuse to let me pay for the meal, you're actually taking away an opportunity for me to do something for you, which is what gives me joy. And it's the first time that I felt guilty in reverse. Guilty <laughs> not for le- not for letting someone else do something for me, but for refusing to let someone else do for me. And, you know, one of the things I would just say here is that the people in your life, they love you. And I would mm-hmm. encourage you to not reduce their love to a transaction that says, if you do something for me, that means I am obligated to do something of equal capacity for you, but rather to allow them to love you, to allow them to help you and say, this is a part of what love is. You are giving me something that I can't give back to you and that's what makes the relationship healthy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's that's really really beautiful TK and there's so much that I see in my own past in terms of driving to perform in a very similar way in my relationships mm. always trying to, you know, be the do good or grab yeah. that check, be the supportive friend yeah. and I really had to explore for myself how difficult it It has and continues to be for me to be on that receiving end, especially for me around emotional support. Thinking back to that mom who was very emotionally unavailable, I have had, you know, a very habitual um, pattern of not having someone show up to meet my emotional needs. So I have a very deep rooted, you know, feeling of unworthiness to even ask. And I have beautiful partners that live with me and are endlessly available to support me. And there's so many moments where it's so hard for me to gesture, to directly say I need support. And actually, I do quite the opposite sometimes. I put my daggers out. I say, you know, why aren't you helping and supporting me? And in reality, I've had to explore my participation in that pattern, which is it's deeply uncomfortable to be someone who is in need and is in. Of state of vulnerability. So going back to Colleen, really exploring how it is for you to be on that receiving end and mm. possibly, you know, uncovering that deep discomfort because as logical as it is, it's very hard for yeah. a lot of us to receive.
3: Yeah. Mm. I, I want to say one quick thing about this receiving compliments. I just realized like, I have this story I tell myself where like, I'm not good enough. Mm. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not the man I want to be like, and I, you know, repeat this narrative a lot. And when someone gives me a compliment, it makes that narrative not true. And there's something about that. That's why it's hard for me to receive compliments. Mm-hmm. It's because I'm telling myself this story. And when you give me a compliment, I'm like, well, that can't be true. Cause this is my, this is my story. Yes. Clearly you don't know. <laughs> you don't know who I am.
4: It's,
3: <laughs> it's incongruous with the narrative you've created about uh-huh. yourself. Yeah.
1: Right. And Ryan, I have realized that I don't like the way you treat my best friend. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sticking up for me. I'm going to have to ask you to stop. Okay. <laughs> uh, Colleen, i love to send you a copy of the book, How to Meet Yourself. Uh, before we wrap up her question, though, Nicole, I wanted to talk to you about last couple times we've had you on the podcast. It was uh, your first book, How to Do the Work. This is actually doing the work, though, ironically, mm-hmm. right? Because it's a workbook of sorts. What was the impetus of, of writing the book?
0: Um, writing how to do the work as practical as, you know, I attempted to make it at the end of every chapter. There's journal prompts and, you know, tools to use. I was very clear as I was writing it that there was so much more um, of the journey. And my hope was to offer people a roadmap, um, regardless of where they are on their journey, just starting off well into it, to be able to have that, that reference point and also honoring the fact that you know, our journeys look different. We take different amounts of time at different stages. So really giving people that home base um, to kind of come back to check in on and, you know, kind of referencing also, I think the first question I got after how to do the work was, wow, there's so much to be conscious of. How do I even begin to explore all of this nature of my being? So that became the natural next step was to provide the workbook of that exact journey and that roadmap.
3: So good.
1: Our next question is from Erica.
0: Erica from Las Vegas here, a patron supporter since
2: May of this year. Um, As someone with ADHD, I tend to find things that make me happy and feel good, but I can't stick to anything. When I discovered your podcast, I did so well and get rid of all my stuff. Um, And as a shopaholic, I didn't buy anything unnecessary for like five weeks, which is incredible. With someone who finds so much joy and peace in having that control, but can't seem to maintain the motivation, what can I do? For many years, I blame my ADHD, but that has been under control now for about a year and a half. I would like to know what you guys recommend on how I can keep myself on track as I know how miserable I feel when I'm off the wagon. So um, how can I stay on the wagon?
1: You know, Erica talks about shopping to feel good. And we often think that feeling good is a virtue. Feeling Mm. good is pleasant, Mm -hmm. but it is not a virtue. And I think quite often what we will do is we will adorn our problems with pleasure. And that's sort of like wallpapering a burning house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ryan used to be in the wallpapering business. It's
3: like putting chocolate syrup on broccoli. <laughs> no,
1: no, no, no. It's not like that at all.
3: <laughs> so
1: the the wallpapering of the burning house is like, okay, you can try to beautify something, but if it's on fire, you aren't you're simply covering up the problem. And we do that with pleasantries. Oh, I have a problem. You know what I should do? I should wallpaper over this problem <laughs> with Pleasure with hedonistic pursuits. She calls herself a a shopaholic, right? Which just means a person who's addicted to consumption. Consumerism is the ideology that buying something is going to make me more whole or more complete or happier. And of course, it doesn't ever do that. And so we tell ourselves a story: Well, I didn't buy the right things. I didn't buy the good <laughs> things. I didn't buy the better things. I didn't buy the the things that will improve me as a person. And if I just get that thing, then I will be complete. Not realizing that oh no, I'm already complete without it. The things I bring into my life can augment my experience of life. They can enhance my experience of life. They can magnify my experience of life, but they can't complete me. And so, Nicole, it seems to me there's a story here with Erica that she's telling herself is, I need to feel good as though feeling good is going to equate to happiness, peace, joy.
0: Right and to speak to your then point anytime i i think that we look outside of ourselves to feel better in any way to feel happiness to relieve suffering anytime we're grabbing for that external which often looks like shopping looks like our phones looks like a million different things that we do it's important to really explore what's underneath of it, because to speak to your point, if if we're not feeling whole, connected to ourself to begin with, and that while it might feel like a temporary dopamine hit and we mm-hmm. feel a little better in that moment, the suffering or we're distracted at least away from it. Ultimately, our feelings come from within us. And back to something she said as well, um, for the many of us out there who started whether it's a shopping habit, any sort of new habit uh, to create change in our life, going back to feelings, a really counterintuitive byproduct of change often is that we don't actually feel better. When we begin Mm. that deeper Mm. exploration, pulling back all the layers of the onion, what often we're left with is a lifetime of not great feelings that Mm. we've accumulated that again, on the surface, we were trying to distract, relieve the suffering of, but that's what's underneath of it is the case. So healing in and of itself, not only do we challenge the subconscious part of our mind that loves those familiar patterns because they're predictable. So any new behavior, the more consistently we do it, will feel more and more uncomfortable. Then a lot of us are met with that deep reservoir of, of pain. And it becomes really natural and easy then to continue back down that old cycle of, oh, well, I remember what relieves this shopping or Mm. my phone or whatever, this relationship that makes me feel temporarily better. And then I shift back into that immediate coping mechanism Mm -hmm. mode in a sense without again, exploring the deeper problem issue concern that has been there all along. But again, it feels different because now we're more conscious to it.
3: Yeah. It's like we do good Uh. things with the expectation of feeling good. Um, Like she got rid of all her stuff she minimized and she, you know, she was doing great for five weeks. And it sounds like she was looking at this process of getting rid of her stuff as the answer to being happy. And as you said, it's like when you rely on those external things, you're not dealing with the internal. So you could get rid of all your stuff. You could stop shopping, you know, for, for however long you want to stop shopping. But yeah, if you're not okay with the, the, the person that you are with, um, who you are on the inside, then it doesn't matter what external things you reach for.
4: Yeah. You are not a failure just because you feel bad. You know, emotions don't equal ethics. Moods don't equal Mm -hmm. morality. Just because you feel bad doesn't mean you're evil. Just because you feel good doesn't mean you're holy. Your integrity, it's determined by the healthy relationship you form with whatever you feel. I feel sad today. I feel jealous today. I feel frustrated and angry today. But I am not these feelings I am the aware space inside of which these feelings are happening. I am the capacity to engage these feelings with imagination, with creativity, with compassion, with non-judgment. And so I would be aware of defining what it means to be on track by how miserable or joyful I feel because sometimes you're going to be on track And it doesn't feel like you're on track. A lot of times in life, progress really does feel like regress. You know, when you're starting something new, for instance, it often feels like you are working your way backwards and making your life worse, but you're actually moving forward. Mm. What I would do is I would focus on building momentum by doing small things that cause me to live in accordance or alignment with my values and sort of step back and look at your life and say, am I being true to what I believe in? even when my moods are not always a perfect reflection of that. One of the things I love about Dr. Nicole's writings is that there are so many moral prescriptions today when it comes to self-help. I ought to be more assertive. I ought to mm-hmm. be more self-honest. I ought to be more this. But you have a wonderful way of taking people beyond prescriptive thinking and breaking down the process of how. How can they get there? Mm-hmm. For, for, so for someone who defines success in terms of feeling good, how can they start small and build momentum and act in accordance with their values, even when the emotions don't support them.
0: Well, I want to go back to something you're you know, very wisely sharing with us all now, which is ultimately, I think a lot of us have this belief that the goal is to just always feel good, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Or not to feel anything at all, just to be this calm, peaceful, zen being. And I could really counter that with, we, we need our emotions. Yeah. They're our sensory system to help us navigate the environment, our relationships around us. So if we have that, or any listeners have that expectation that that is the goal to always feel good or never to feel anything at all, then that's another one of those expectations yeah. that we won't be able to meet and going back to This idea, and I talk about a small daily promise and how to work with, again, that pull back into those familiar patterns. And for a lot of us, that means allowing our emotions to be part of our conversation. So making that daily commitment, breaking whatever the new habit is that you want to create for yourself into such a small promise, it's almost negligible and you're almost rolling your eyes at it and then get really good and consistent with keeping that promise. And for some Mm -hmm. of us, that might mean tuning into all of the moments where I, I don't feel so good and allowing myself to just be okay with not feeling good of course if we have safe and support and relationships that we can you know navigate comfortably in those moments of not feeling good doing so in a way that's safe However, that for a lot of us is important. We've learned to avoid, to distract ourselves from all of the deeper not feeling Mm. good emotions. And as far as I'm concerned, a lot of us in adulthood really do need to learn how to tolerate not feeling good in a calm, grounded way. Because Mm. again, that is part of life and that's gonna continue to happen even if we do curate the environment around us, Mm. life still happens around us.
1: Yeah. I think the key here is we experience these emotions without needing to cling to them. What Ryan was talking about earlier with respect to guilt is a type of clinging in a way, without even realizing sometimes what we're clinging to. Because it's easy to see when we stop clinging to a material possession, if we've donated it, but you might still be clinging to it psychologically if you're like, oh, I shouldn't have gotten rid of it or man, was that the right decision? Or maybe I should hold on to that thing just in case. Mm -hmm. And now we're still clinging to it and it's causing psychological clutter. It's causing emotional clutter, mental clutter, right? So you may get rid of the physical clutter and the opposite is also true. You can let go of a thing mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and still have the thing in your home. There are plenty of things One might even argue all of the things in my home, I like them; they enhance my life. But if something were to happen to any of them, the only thing that I would feel is inconvenience. Like, (laughs) oh man, I got to get a new couch because the other one got set on fire. Mm. But I'm not; I don't have an emotional hold onto it, and vice versa. It does not have an emotional hold on me. We have a question here from Ben.
4: My name is Ben Yancey.
3: I'm from Northern Kentucky. The thought of everything just kind of ending really just gives me an empty feeling in my stomach. I was just wondering, you know, how do you get past that? Everybody dies. Everybody knows that. The other thing is I'm 42 now, but in my 20s, not really scared of anything. Had a couple kids. Now, like, heights terrify me. Rainy, slippery roads terrify me. Is that a symptom of being a parent and not wanting to leave your
1: children behind? Just wondering about your thoughts. I'm reminded of one of my favorite David Foster Wallace quotes. He said, the truth will set you free, but not until it's had its way with you. Mm. And I think one of the things that the reason we're so reckless as kids and we do crazy things, I used to do donuts on the highway in my 1981 <laughs> Buick Regal. That's stupid. <laughs> right? <And> he, <laughs> he once ran to Walmart naked. <laughs> <laughs> to Walmart, not in Walmart. That's right, clear. Yeah, to Walmart and back. Yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> there's such a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> so we would do these things as kids because there's this... We don't have all the truth, the truth that a lot of the things we do are really dangerous or terrifying. Unfortunately, the pendulum then swings the other way. Mm. And I think it's called like, um, what is it called? Dread stats or dread data. Uh, anyway, that we now, you know, like so for example, Ryan, you have a about one in 42 million chance of dying from terrorism. Oh, my goodness. And, and you yeah, didn't even realize that. <laughs> Right. And we often treat that the same thing as like, that's more terrifying than dying in a car crash. We have about a one in a hundred chance of dying in a car crash,
3: Josh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, seriously.
1: <laughs> and we treat these things as though in fact the terrorism's far more terrifying right because we assign some sort of mental value to it right mm-hmm. there's no real truth i mean the likelihood of anyone in this room dying from terrorism is so small that we don't really need to dedicate a whole lot of mental capacity toward it right. and yet the news media and other sources that bring it to our doorstep and into our homes they they do a really good job of terrifying us. And I think that's where Ben is right now is now everything that wasn't scary at all to him when he was 20 is so horrifying mm-hmm. that he hasn't found this sort of in between because it does make sense to be cautious, to look before you leap. When Ryan and I were 15 years old, we just leapt. We didn't <laughs> look at all. Right. Yeah. But where Ben is, is in a similar position to where I am sometimes I'm I'm roughly his age as well. Sometimes you just look and then you refuse to leap at all, even though you've looked and you said, oh, this is going to be fine. This is going to be Mm -hmm. safe. But you know what? I'm still terrified. Mm.
0: Yeah, so in terms of talking a bit about emotions, fear, emotion in particular, um, like I was sharing earlier, emotions, you know, are are data. They give information. And the biggest piece of information that fear gives us is there's a possible threat. Mm. And to speak to your point, Joshua, there's oftentimes it's it's accurate, right? Looking Mm. over that ledge, you know, crossing the street where there's traffic coming, it's appropriate and necessary, one might even say, to feel fear in those moments so that we can register the fear, take the meaning out of it. Oh, okay, that my body is telling that this is possibly unsafe. Our body has incredible wisdom for us. Now I can make an informed decision maybe to not cross that street, to cross the street at the light or to do what have you. This is all assuming again, that we are comfortable, grounded in our fear detector, if you will, is working accurately. And I, very interestingly had almost the opposite experience in childhood, I was riddled with, with fear. Mm. Um, I did not have that YOLO approach to life, throwing <laughs> myself. I was debilitated by mm-hmm. it. And again, I understand it very much through the context of my home. Living in a city where there was constant stressors, living in an immediate family unit where there was a lot of health related, like I was sharing earlier, issues, having an emotionally unavailable mother left me to feel overwhelmed at all at the time. So mm. it's understandable then that laying in bed at night, I would race, my mind would race with all of the things to fear. I was quite literally the little girl afraid of the world and I would present as much walking around shy, really scared mm. in, in outside world. And again, when we talk about fear, I think to speak to the first point I made, it, it often is appropriate. We have to though understand how equipped we feel to deal with fear. If you're like me and you're under supported in your stress resilience or your ability to tolerate it, what we'll begin to then do is misattribute and see things as threatening that maybe accurately aren't. And or in adulthood, maybe we do have the capacity to deal with. So my relationship with fear really began to shift. Of course, it was very much a process. When I taught that little girl inside of me that I'm not overwhelmed or I don't have to be overwhelmed, I have the resources to tolerate more and more stressful, scary things in life so that when I then walk up to the precipice of something that possibly is threatening, I have a different evaluation system. I have one that more accurately reflects my adult capacities, my adult relationships, mm-hmm. and all of the tools that now my adult body has learned to to, de- to develop in terms of dealing with the stress at hand. So when we're exploring our fear, we have to understand that a lot of it is very much accurate, and maybe it is attached to us wanting to be around for children, mm-hmm. family, loved ones that we have. And we also have to really explore how competent we feel in terms of dealing with fear. Because if we don't feel like we can tolerate stress, what we'll begin to do is almost debilitate ourselves, not able to leave the home because everything will feel so disproportionately threatening and we'll feel so under-resourced to deal with it.
1: Can can you talk about some of the tools that you have in in the new workbook, How to Meet Yourself? Mm -hmm. By the way, I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version. Can you talk about some of the tools that will help people deal with fear specifically? Because you mentioned some of the tools. Are there like three that really just stand out to you?
0: 100%. Actually, the whole first section, I, I separated the workbook into three major sections. And we begin with the body, developing body consciousness, reconnecting to our body, which is where our nervous system lives. So many tools in terms of exercises and Caring for our body, including making sure that we're eating nutrient-dense foods, making sure that we're getting the rest we need by not always being on the go, by making sure that we're sleeping at night on the same end, making sure that we're moving our body enough, paying attention to how we're breathing. We can learn through consistent lifestyle practices to take care of our nervous system. And we Mm. can also have more directed approaches like grounding, tuning into my physical body in this moment, not lost in my mind, maybe the spiraling thoughts that are causing anxiety, tuning into for me, how does it feel sitting in this chair with these lights on me? tuning into my breath? Can I learn how to intentionally breathe calmly and deeply from my belly?" all of these different in-the-moment tools we can use. And of course, I explore many more in the first section of the workbook. Again, intentionally putting it there because if we don't feel calm and grounded and safe in our body to proceed into the next section when we begin to talk about our mind and our ego and our shadow and all of the filters that are coloring how our body is experiencing the world, it's not gonna feel like a safe place to continue that exploration. So there's many daily habits that we can create and most of them are around caring for our body, because that's where our nervous system lives. To have a regulated nervous system, we have to make sure we're consistently making sure our physical needs are met. And then again, there's in the moment tools like breath work, like grounding, where when we start to feel scared, we can empower ourselves to create that safety and to again, relearn that we're not that overwhelmed child anymore, and that we do have the resources or the bandwidth or the stress resilience to create safety, even when it's scary.
4: That's very good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Those how to's, man. Those how to's are so powerful. One little thing I'll add to the mix is when it comes to discerning if it's the type of fear you should do something about or if it's the type of fear you should embrace, I think first it's natural that you'll have lifestyle changes when you take on family. And it's natural to experience all sorts of new feelings that didn't show up when you weren't accountable to others and when your behavior didn't really put others at risk. So that's not an entirely or rather an intrinsically bad thing for you to say, oh, if I take this risk and something goes wrong, it's not just on me, but it's also on my spouse, it's also on my children. That's natural and that's okay. A good litmus test for discerning if this is the sort of thing to change or embrace is this. Those changes, do they make you resent yourself? Do they make you bitter towards your family? If so, then I would take a look at that because there may be something more at play than just you having natural fear, healthy fear. On the other hand, if you say, no, these, these fears and the behaviors they lead me to are consistent with the priorities that I now have, and it's just a matter of letting go of the person that I used to be, then that, that, that's more likely to be the case that it's the sort of healthier kind of fear. I got to run that by the good doctor though.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think anytime, again, when we have the consequence on someone else that we love, especially our children, it is a very natural Um, state of affairs. So I love kind of just looking in terms of our values and the context in which the fear is happening, because a lot of it is understandable. And for some of us, that might just be the shift. Oh, this isn't, you know, something wrong. It's not problematic. Fear is normal. I might not be used to it. it. might be unfamiliar, but just kind of reframing it mentally might be enough to kind of switch our relationship with fear, though. When that's not the case, then we can drop into our body and actually teach our body how to tolerate a bit more of that even natural fear.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to speak to Ben's, uh, point about, um, how he feels when he thinks about everything ending. And what I'll say is, uh, I, I think about my death a lot. I mean, I think all of us, like what, we have this fascination with death. It's really interesting. Like we're always thinking about it. We're scared of it. Um, I, I kind of <laughs> talked about in the past podcast, how I've actually accepted the fact that like, Hey, look, um, death is part of life. It's what actually, there's no life without death. And, um, it kind of helps me I guess, accept and appreciate even uh, the process. But what I'll say is like, when I get to that thought of like everything ending and um, I don't know, the world catching on fire, whatever it is, it's like on a short enough timeline, you know, everything's ephemeral, right? So given that, it's like, I have to take advantage as much as I can to be in the present moment, to appreciate what I have what kind of experiences I can have, what kind of experiences I can give others. And that to me makes life worth it. And the thing too, is like, I don't take it as seriously because it is, it is going to all be gone eventually. So it's like, why am I stressing so badly about whatever it is when, um, you know, life is short, like it's life's too short to stress out. And I do stress out a lot. Don't get me wrong. But like this, this kind of, perspective, it will help pull me out of it every once in a while. And not take myself so seriously. The one thing I'll say like with death and we, we wrote a, uh, uh, an essay on the minimalists.com. Um, it's called, let's talk about death. There are some things you need to prepare for. There's like wills you need to do. I got life insurance, uh, f- for Mariah. And you know, there are certain things that I have in place for when I do die. So it's not like I'm not preparing for it, but like, once you kind of mitigate, once I have mitigated like as much as I can, You know the risk or or the the problems that might occur after I pass away. Like I've mitigated a lot of that, so it helps me stay in the moment a little bit more rather than wondering, like, oh man, if I got into a car crash, if I was one of those one in one hundred, you know, at at, at the end of this podcast, is Mariah going to be taken care of? It's like I can be like, oh yeah, she is. She's going to be fine.
5: Yeah, yeah.
3: I think that uh, often we don't take fear to its terminus,
1: meaning like we get terrified by something. We got this cold plunge in my backyard, an ice bath, basically, right? Mm -hmm. And remember the first time I got in, I was afraid of the cold water. Now, even (laughs) saying that out loud is crazy, right? But also, I remember when I first started letting go of material possessions, I was afraid to let go of my favorite shirt. And I found that as soon as I started saying these things out loud, it started making a whole lot more sense to me that my fears are so irrational. Mm. Or if I said it out loud, I'm afraid of tigers. Okay, that sounds like a rational fear, right? Mm -hmm. And so speaking it into existence in a way, talking about the fear out loud, even if no one else is there, if I pull out a shirt from my drawer and say I'm afraid to get rid of this t-shirt, well, that says something about my clinging, Mm. my holding on irrationally. Now, it doesn't mean that, well, of course I know I can, get by without the shirt, right? Mm -hmm. But in that moment, if I have fear, I'm actually telling myself a story that, oh, maybe I can't let this go. And that is a disempowering story. We tell ourselves a lot of these stories all the time. Yeah, We're going to move on to some social media questions here. Malabama, it looks like we have a question from Facebook.
6: Louise has a question. As a recovering people pleaser, how do I leave behind the person (laughs) I tried to be for others and get back to my authentic self?
1: Dr. Nicole, mm-hmm. you talk a lot about being your authentic self. And I love the way that you talk about it because it's it's not about just simply being the best version, the robotic version of yourself, right? And I want to be clear with Luis. Your authentic self is not found in the expectation of others, <laughs> right? We're always people-pleasing as a recovering people-pleaser myself, I realized because of you that that is a type of codependency. Mm. Yeah,
0: I want to kind of build on this a bit too and and say, you know, that who we are, our authentic self isn't contained in any role that we play for someone else at all. And actually piggyback on the last conversation that we were just having around emotions and what you said, Ryan, about kind of the you know, temporary nature of the human existence, I mean, we are evolving energetic creatures in terms of our authentic self, in terms of our emotions, we're changing more than we're stagnant and mm-hmm. it, all this idea around attachment and clinging. And while many of us might feel like we're stuck in a feeling, a, a role, the people pleaser, we're stuck maybe in fear and anxiety. And we make that all of who we are often the the time. Ta- Often is the case, we're living in our mind with that idea and we're creating that then. We're filtering the world through that thought, that idea. Again, at one time, likely and this is where i'll get into kind of the adaptation that people pleasing can be likely playing a role might have kept us safe likely our nervous system might be dysregulated caught in a fear based response because like me we didn't have that attuned caregiver to bring us back into safety we come to know ourselves as this very solid and you know kind of unchanging thing but a lot of that is because of our subconscious mind the habits the patterns that we're stuck as our authentic self is really a changing energetic you know, entity for lack really of a better word. So anytime Mm -hmm. we're inhabiting a role and that's all we can experience ourselves as in relationships, whether it's the people pleaser or the helper, again, I would make a case that that's not necessarily a reflection of, Who we are. Who we are is the being Mm. behind the person who maybe does sometimes make the choice Mm. to be helpful, to be available, to Mm -hmm. please another. But for a lot of us, that's the only way we know ourselves to be. oftentimes in childhood, scanning the environment, becoming hypervigilant, anticipating the needs of someone else in that very people-pleasing mode might have been the only way that we created safety from maybe an unpredictable parent or an unavailable parent who we had to get the little bit that was available to us when they were here. So we had to be really attuned to them and making sure that they were calm and grounded and happy enough that they could connect with us the little bit way Mm -hmm. that they could. And then before we know it, that becomes our embodied way of being. We're the People pleaser who going back to the idea of resentment before long, we're so depleted, so in service of other people. Our needs have gone unmet for so long. Of Mm. course, I'm speaking from my own personal journey, Mm -hmm. and we're so mad at the world around us. We're so desperate to find the person who we don't have to people please yet again. We back ourselves in the corner because when it comes down to it, we don't know any other way to be.
3: Mm. Man, so I need to hear this again. And I think Luis needs to hear this again. But um, what did you say, uh, your identity? is not formed by what you do for others? By the role you play for others. By the role you play for others. Tweet that podcast, on.
1: Th- that feels to me like we all, if we see a rainbow, what do we see? We see all the colors. I've never seen just a red rainbow, <laughs> right?
6: Not
0: yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that <be> pretty scary. <laughs> and, and yet when we see someone and we see them just as one role, oh, you're just a mother. Oh, you're just an entrepreneur. Oh, you are just a sister. Oh, you are just a daughter. Whatever it is, mm-hmm that one role that is a support role. And it can be really useful to support others. But when our entire identity gets wrapped up in that one role, that one color of the rainbow, Mm. we cease to see the whole person for who they are.
4: Dr. Nicole said something. She said, uh, we're continually evolving beings. And when I think about evolution, I think about how there's no evolution without some form of extinction right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to grow into our authentic self or in order to do the things mm-hmm. that make us come alive. We have to be willing to die to those mm-hmm. aspects of ourselves and those habits and those roles and so on that don't serve us, that are not capable of moving forward with who life is causing us to become. And when I think about this dying aspect I think it's important to think about it as a process, not a one-time event. So it's a little bit like the horror movies. Mm-hmm. You know, the last scene of every horror movie, what happens? They, they finally kill the monster and the monster's lying there dead and everybody breathes a sigh of <laughs> relief and they all hug each other <laughs> and celebrate. And then when they turn around and look at where the body's supposed to be, the body's gone. Mm-hmm. And then there's always the dun-dun,
5: dun-dun, yeah. dun-dun.
4: And you know there's going to be a sequel, right? Yeah. But you don't respond to the existence of that sequel as if something bad has happened, you know that's part of the game, right? And it's the same way with life. When we kill the monsters, the monster of the people pleaser within us, that's not a one-time thing. There's gonna be a sequel. It's a continual process. And so the relapse doesn't mean you don't care. The relapse doesn't mean you aren't serious about change. The relapse doesn't mean you haven't grown. The relapse means that you are a human, that this is a process, and that life is all about growing and continuing to grow and not using our moments of relapse against ourselves. And so Mm. be encouraged as you have those moments where you feel like you're doing really good, you're a recovering people pleaser, And then you have one of those moments where you just let somebody talk you into something that you didn't want to do. Don't give up and don't say, ah, I'm just the same old me that I've always been. Nope. Mm. You're a better you. You're getting so much better. But you just had a moment. And that's life. Yeah, man. You can
3: always begin again. Yeah, man. I, uh, I'm also recovering people pleaser. But what, what I realized is, um, I really needed other people's validation because I did not have my own validation and it works kind of, you know, like it's, it's temporary. Someone validates me. Oh, Ryan, thank you. You did such a good job. Oh yeah. Thank you. I did do a good job. Thank you. (laughs) But like it, 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 uh, weans pretty quickly. Like you always need more. Exactly. And, you know, getting back to understanding who you are inside, being happy with who you are, um, that will, for me, it has helped me not be such a people pleaser.
0: And I really want to honor you know all of the fellow people pleasers that are like many of us out there that are even able to already create that space to discover because it took me into my thirties that I didn't even know how I like to how I preferred to spend my time in a very objective mm-hmm. way, let alone what I really wanted and needed it then as I began to actualize and live into those choices, I mean especially when we're embodying a role and there's a someone else involved now we have all of their expectations that a lot of us are going to show up differently around, right? Mm. When we are able to create space, even explore what we really want, um, like the listener's question kind of indicates there is some level of awareness that's huge to celebrate. And then every choice we're able to put our needs or factor our needs into our relationships, that's an even bigger celebration because I can imagine there was a lot of people on the receiving end who expected you to do otherwise in those moments that are going to have, at minimum, a violation of expectations, a surprised Mm. reaction. And then, of course, depending on their past, their history, your relationship with them and a million other contextual factors, they might have some deeper reaction. And having lived this experience, needing to create boundaries, factor myself in, I understand that it's not as easy um, to break those habits as I think it, it can feel or we can hold ourselves up to the idea that it is so easy So celebration I think is really called for um, and for any of us breaking any of these habits especially when their roles were playing in a relationship because the byproduct will always affect someone else and it might not be support that we receive yeah, <laughs> yeah, immediately yeah, at yeah, least <laughs>
3: yeah so you said this the word actualize which makes me think of self-actualization which I think your workbook, can lead someone there but w- when i hear that term self actualization i th- i think i know what it means but can you speak to like what does that mean to actually self actualize
0: to me it means to live in in alignment so mm. even going back to that idea of the pyramid to be connected to our authentic self right that will give us messages for what my body in particular. I have a very unique body in terms of what I need in terms of my emotions. We all emotionally, energetically are a little different. And when I'm in alignment, which just means I am dropping into me, I'm checking in with me, I have Mm. space to do so. And then I'm able to be me and show up as me over time, the more consistently my physical and emotional needs are met, then I think traditionally when we hear self-actualize, this is where our mind goes, then I have the ability to explore, well, what makes me, what am I interested in? What am I curious Mm. about? What are my imaginings? What am I going to create into this world? But I really want to emphasize, and again, very strategically, the actual section that I imagine most people are going to pick up the workbook to get to, the authentic self, is very strategically in section three, because Mm. it isn't until we peel back and begin to identify our basic bodies, Mm. basic needs, our emotional needs, the fact that we're even having emotions for some of us, before then we can, I think, evolve into. So what, actualization means is just alignment, dropping into that center and exploring what it is that we want and need in any given moment, including, of course, creativity and imagination and purpose and passion and all those more traditional things. They don't come when we're in survival mode, as many Mm. of us are Mm. stuck in.
3: Right. Yeah. It's about like understanding your strengths, your weaknesses, like what you're capable of, um, what your preferences are. Um, Yeah. It's like, for me, that's what, that's what it means to be, you know, self-actualized is, to truly understand like what makes me tick right. and what, like I know I'm never going to be an NBA player. I know I'm never going to be an NFL player, you know, like it's important for me though. Cause I used to tell myself, I'm going to go try out for the Bengals. Swear to God, this is a story <laughs> I told myself at like, you know, 17 years old. Um, But it's important for me now to be like, no dude, you're not going to play NFL football. Like let that dream go and move on to something else.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I think that dream can also be a compass in a way. What do I yeah. why, why do I have this dream? Oh, it's because I want the respect of other people. Or mm-hmm. maybe that's the reason. Or maybe it's because I'm really into football and I, that's how where I'd like to work. Okay, well great. There are a bunch of other things you can do professionally that would allow you to still be in that sphere hmm. if you really look at the 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 desire behind the desire. Yeah.
4: No, now that's th- true of all my dreams except for wanting to be like Bruce Lee. I truly want to be Bruce Lee. I, I want that <laughs> body, that chest, that look, those fighting skills, not what it represents. I I'll want hold it be that the, vision
0: for you. <laughs> the, yeah. Yeah.
1: But here's the funny thing about that, though. You don't actually desire that. It, it, <laughs> it's just like, because if you did, you, you would be closer to that, right? And my point is, if we truly desire something, if it's compelling enough then we will go down that path and achieve something relatively close to it, right? Even if it's not like you're playing for the Bengals, mm-hmm. you might, if that, if you, it was
3: compelling enough for you, you may have ended up being an assistant coach on the Bengals right. at some point, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like my, my thought was like the Bengals were such a bad football team that I'm like, I'll just go there and fix it myself. <laughs> but there are other ways to, to, to help with them being a better football team than playing for the Bengals. So there's, yeah. different,
1: there's a difference between a, a deep desire, something that's truly compelling and a want. Uh oh, that'd be kind of nice to have. Like mm-hmm. if all if someone said, "Hey, you know, my my net worth on Google is 124 million dollars," which is great because uh it, you need to remove a comma and some zeros and move a decimal and and it's about $124 in real life. <laughs> but um what uh, for whatever reason, someone wrote that, and and it's in some article somewhere. It was before Bitcoin dropped. He was worth 124 million. No, he's worth 24 bucks. Right, exactly. Here's here's what I'll say about that specifically, though. Right? It's a want for me. Like, yeah, it'd be really nice to have 124 million, but I'm not willing to do the things I would need to do in order to make that happen. It's not a deep desire of mine. Mm. I don't find it particularly compelling to become a hundred millionaire. Those things would be nice. Everyone in this room would be a millionaire as a result. Mm-hmm. Even even Nicole gets a million dollars. Here you go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I would. I don't feel so compelled that I'm willing to set fire to everything else in my life in order to pursue the finances. And I think the same thing is true with Bruce Lee. He had to sort of set everything else in his life on fire in order mm. to be Bruce Lee. Michael Jordan, same thing. Yeah. He's notorious for not being the best father, the best teammate, the best friend, the best family member, but. He's often known as the third best basketball player of all time. (laughs) Whenever he talks about Michael Jordan. Shots fired. Shots fired. I I just have that one
4: tier. Just the one tier. I just
1: love
3: how he puts John Stockton ahead of Michael Jordan. (laughs) Who wouldn't? (laughs) Alabama, we have a question from Twitter.
6: Matt has a question. Can you define anxiety? Is it possible to cure it? Or is it something that is just a part of life?
3: Ooh, I'm interested in this because I have a lot of anxiety. <laughs> and I, I just deal with it. It's like, I used to always look for the cure. I mean, that's why I was so addicted to all the ephemeral pleasures back in my corporate days. And still, like those, those, those thoughts are still there, you know, because I know the short-term fixes work short-term. Um, but yeah, it's something that I've had to really learn how to live with. What's been helping me most recently is... Uh, anxiety is part of the human experience. And because I, I talk, I've i talked about sadness before, how um, I was with a friend and I we were kind of talking about our parents and like I started to get really sad about like, oh, I wish my parents were this way. I wish they were that way. And, um, you know, poor me. And then I realized I'm like, dude, like we're, we're on top of this uh, mountain and uh, we're having this conversation. And I look at the rocks. I'm like, those rocks don't get to experience sadness. Hmm. Like how lucky are you to even experience the sadness? And I've been trying to use that with anxiety as well. But um. Dr. LePaire, if you have a better answer, I'd love to hear how do you deal with anxiety? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm actually gonna Ryan piggyback off this this concept of anxiety being a very normal part of the human experience, just mm. like I was talking in terms of fear. You know, the experience of anxiety is literally wired into our nervous system, mm-hmm. which is always sensing the environment around us outside of our awareness through a process called neuroception, which is simply means we're always on alert for that possible threaded hand. Now, again, back in childhood, if we were under-supported... When we were dysregulated, when we were upset, when we were stressed, when we were having a need as a child, if we didn't have a caregiver to come and help regulate our nervous system, that's actually what's happening. When an Mm. infant is crying, that's a state of dysregulation. And without that attuned caregiver, we are in such a state of dependency that our nervous system can't regulate itself, much like we can't meet our own needs. So the more consistently then that happens, what a lot of us become wired then into is a state of dysregulation. We never come back from that point of stress back to that point of safety. Because again, in childhood, we can't do it physically, physiologically on our own. And the very many of us, we didn't have that level of attunement. So, what we then experience, much like I described myself, the little girl afraid of the world. I mean, I had an anxiety disorder diagnosis for as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. And I have all of the letters, OCD, GAD, you know, panic disorder, that's generalized anxiety disorder, So in terms of can we heal it for a very long time, seeing similar patterns in my family, coming from a very anxious family, I imagined as many of us have been told that it's genetic, that I have no ability to create change around this. And it really took me exploring and learning about the nervous system and this very natural system to come to the awareness that what my body was actually stuck in was a a nervous system state of, of response. I felt so, again, overwhelmed all of the time that the anxiety that I was experiencing near constant Mm -hmm. was that marker all of the time, telling me that everything, again, is threatening outside of my awareness. So even Mm. in moments where I shouldn't seemingly be anxious and I'm on the brink of a near panic attack, it didn't mean that I'm inevitably going to be an anxious individual. What I really learned was that was my body just continuing to send out those messages that Mm. it is just simply not safe. So the biggest transformation happened when I, A, learned all of this, Mm. and then B, began to apply in terms of my own healing journey. So Mm. a lot of us have the generalized anxiety, the panic disorder, the social anxiety, which is a form even of that people-pleasing. I'm so hyper vigilant to the world around me and so concerned with how I'm being perceived. I'm always on edge when I'm particularly around other people. And again, I could make a case that one of the underlying causes for this or contributors to that experience is actually in our body and that dysregulation, which actually can be healed with these constant choices like we were talking about earlier, caring for my body, learning how to regulate it in the moment. So to answer the question more specifically in terms of can it be healed? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I would not resonate or relate to being an anxious individual? Do I have moments where, you know, I have that marker of, oh, I'm fearful. You know, something's, you know, telling me that I'm feeling, you know, something that is akin to anxiety, but I would not describe myself as being anxiety as I once did.
3: Yeah, Uh, I have to remind myself on a regular basis. My parents aren't in control anymore. mm -hmm. And I realize like that's one large piece of my anxiety. I always feel like the rug Mm -hmm. is going to get swept out from Mm -hmm. underneath of me. Like when everything is going good, I'm like, well... Everything's going great, but something bad's going to happen because that's how it's always been because that's how it was when I was a kid. Like, I I mean, anytime I felt like life was going great, um, I don't know, man, mom gets a DUI. uh, I don't know, stepdad beats me. I mean, it was like always like something that was interrupting this happiness. So I was programmed to feel anxious anytime I'm happy. And um, yeah, I have to remind myself on a regular basis like, hey, man, like your parents, they don't get to ruin your life anymore. Right. Yeah. Matt,
1: You don't want to cure your anxiety. Your anxiety is an alarm clock. Mm -hmm. And if I could give you a pill so that you slept through your alarm clock, that wouldn't do you any good. You would simply be sleeping through the alarm that tells you you need to do something. Anxiety is simply telling you, hey, there's something wrong here. Now, specifically, you're going to have to figure out what that wrongness is. I don't mean morally wrong, but... If your house is super cluttered, yes, that's going to cause anxiety in your life. If you're super unhealthy, yes, that's going to cause anxiety in your life. If you have a ton of debt, anxiety is going to appear if you have toxic friends, toxic family, toxic relationships, you're going to see anxiety permeate your life. And so we have all of these warnings. That's what anxiety is. You don't want to cure the anxiety. You want to witness it. Now, I do have four things that have really helped me. As soon as I know that, oh, this is pointing me toward a problem, if I want to calm down the anxiety, I tend to change my state. And there are four things that I do regularly. The first thing is a breathing exercise, something like the Wim Hof method. It's just 30 deep breaths. And it's almost like you're hyperventilating, except you're not. You're not breathing
3: out as heavily, right? We did a YouTube video with him. We did. We'll put a link
1: to that in the show notes. But I'll do a Wim Hof, Hof breathing for just a minute or two minutes. It's 30 breaths. And all of a sudden, I feel my nervous system self-regulate. Another thing I'll do is I'll get in some sort of cold water. So it could be a cold river, cold lake, a cold plunge, an ice Mm -hmm. bath at home, Mm -hmm. or just a simple cold shower for two minutes. Two minutes is all you need. Completely changes your nervous system for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of science behind this. Another thing that I will do is I will just sprint up a hill if I can, somewhere nearby, just go run, feel that physiology change as I'm sprinting to the yeah, as fast as I can possibly sprint. And it feels great. All of a sudden, the anxiety goes down. But of course, it comes back if what? Mm. If I don't address the problem that caused the anxiety in the first place. Mm. And the fourth thing I do is hug. If I just hug someone for a Prolong, extended, awkward period of time. <laughs> I'll even say, hey, I really need a hug right now or give me a hug. It also changes my nervous system. Now, partially it's because I'm stealing electrons from whoever I'm hugging, <laughs> but also it calms <laughs> me down. So those four things
4: are how I alleviate my own anxiety. First, we need to get you a children's book called The Electron Thief." That's just so good. That's just money in the bank right there. Sometimes I do the Ray, the Ray Charles, man, just hug myself, just that smile. Just yeah, hug myself. Yeah. Hey, man, that's good too, you know? Self-care. Self uh, you know, whenever we speak about things like health or wealth or success as a, a static condition rather than a dynamic state, rather than a dynamic process, rather, um, we tend to increase the likelihood that we'll feel alienated from whatever it is we seek, you know? And I think this is definitely true with anxiety. So I don't want to say you can make your anxiety go away as a one-time event and be done with it forever. But what you can do is you can increase the amount of spaciousness or the amount of consciousness or mindfulness that you have around it. You know, the old idea of between stimulus and response, there is a space, you can expand that space. You can improve your ability to cope with it. You can improve your ability to channel those feelings along constructive lines. You can improve your ability to love yourself in spite of those feelings. And you won't wake up one day necessarily and say, hey, I have been healed of my anxiety, but rather, I am on a journey towards wholeness, and those sensations of anxiety are no longer keeping me off the path. They're no longer separating me from the process, and that's health
1: One other thing worth mentioning, part of the question was, can you define anxiety? Hmm. And I don't think that's really helpful, right? because renaming the thing doesn't change the way that you feel mm. No, Matt, you can, ident- you can identify anxiety without defining it. You feel it right now. You don't need me to define it for you. I will say this, though. One thing that's really helped me out is understanding that emotional well-being is measured by our ability to let go. And so the anxiety, what happens quite often is our anxiety makes us anxious, as Ryan alluded yeah. to a mm. moment ago. Oh, I'm feeling anxious, and that's making me more anxious. Mm. And I'm feeling fearful. That makes me feel more Fear, right? Mm -hmm. And so like all of these things, they become these self-fulfilling prophecies in a way. And letting go is not a one time event. Letting go is something we're constantly doing. And the only way you can actually let go is you hold on to it for a moment and you witness it. You witness that anxiety. And then you can do something like the Sedona method where it's, hey, can I let this go? Would I let this go? When? Recognizing the fact that you that you feel that. I'm not gonna cure the anxiety. What is this pointing toward? Maybe it's pointing to my dis-ease or my unhealth or my inability to communicate with my family. That anxiety is useful for you because it's showing you what's wrong. Yes, you can turn off the alarm, but if you just turn off the alarm and don't deal with the problem, well, then it's going to get much worse in the not-too-distant future.
0: I love how, Joshua, I just want to reflect on this, how you reflected back, because one of the the gifts um, that a clinical supervisor actually gave me when I was in training talking about anxiety, I was working with a client who had anxiety and the supervisor knew enough about my own personal journey that knew I had anxiety too. And we were talking about the case in, in some context. And um, I think my supervisor either asked me what her anxiety, the client's anxiety was like, or somehow the conversation evolved to where she gave me the best piece of advice I ever heard, which was, Never assume you know what someone else is talking about, especially in the moments where you've lived a similar experience yourself. So don't even assume, right? I could say what anxiety is for me and I don't know how helpful that would be because it really is individual and subjective. The way I describe anxiety, you might look for those markers and that might not be how anxiety feels for you, the listener or really anyone who has a similar type experience. And something else I wanna build on is Going into this concept of talking about our feelings, Um, while, again, there is, you know, some belief that moving a feeling to our, you know, language part of our brain creates a separation, the reality of it is when we're talking about anything emotional or our trauma in particular A, oftentimes it happens before we have the ability to have language to talk. It happens at a Mm. pre-verbal stage of development. So we can't actually have the language to talk about it. Mm. And B, generally where anxiety is stored in our brain, even though, of course, most things are stored across several areas, it's largely nonverbal. So when Mm. we're thinking about defining our anxiety just extra nudge I want to offer is to maybe avoid even using the traditional language-based way of understanding it and shifting into a more sensory, body-based way of defining, if you will, Mm. our anxiety. Because I think some of us trip ourselves up when we don't have the words or we can't figure out how it is to verbalize what we're feeling. And again, I can make a case that that might not be exactly the part of our brain we want to be in. We might want to sit in that visceral body based and learn how to have a relationship with it in our senses as opposed Mm. to our logical thinking language mind, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Malibam, I want to check in with the live stream here in a second. But first, we have a question from Jessica on Facebook.
6: How can plant medicines help people on their healing journey?
1: Hmm. So I'm hyper skeptical of shortcuts in general, just because <laughs> shortcuts, there are, there are no real shortcuts. There are direct paths, right? I'm also hyper skeptical of anything that creates a dependency. So I need this thing in order for it to be uh, revelatory, right? Um, but you can check in with spirituality or God or self or the universe without any of these shortcuts. However, I also understand that there are plant medicines, as Jessica calls them, that allow people to have access to intuitive wisdom that perhaps is not accessible via the prefrontal cortex.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, inherently for those of us who have had life-changing transformation, I know there are many people who go away and have that plant medicine experience or have it consistently part of their journey and do feel that shift in consciousness that maybe relaxing of the prefrontal cortex and the ego to maybe see what's even below the surface and the deeper stuff. But much like you, Joshua, I I am always hesitant. I always am wondering then, well, what happens next? What do you do Mm -hmm. with this new state of consciousness or awareness? Because what often happens, and it's not surprising that a lot of the plant medicine kind of is, uh, given or administered lack of a better word in a kind of retreat based container. And anytime we're away from our regular life, it becomes a bit easier to go into that unfamiliar space to have this altered consciousness experience. Mm -hmm. However, Mm -hmm. then what happens when the airplane maybe hits the ground and we're back at home where all of the habits and patterns and all these systems, right. That have expectations for us are all living. So, While, yes, I do think for some of us we can relax part of our brain, our awareness, maybe see and have some deeper stuff come up from our subconscious, then what do we do next? Can we continue to integrate and incorporate that awareness, that shift, maybe even the habits that might come along with me now seeing things differently in real time? Because that's, again, where the challenge is, because that's where all of the other habitual network of patterns Are living. So some people, I think, find it helpful as that springboard. But I think other people might have had either haven't had those transformative experiences or who maybe did, but then found that kind of pull back into those familiar and it wasn't Mm. sustainable.
3: Yeah. I don't, I don't see plant medicine as a shortcut. It's more of a, I see it as like a therapy. So like there's, studies with um like psilocybin ayahuasca i mean let's be honest that's what she's asking about right like the the the, yeah the the hallucinogenics and uh even like um mdma or mda like all of those things have shown to um help with perspective especially with like ptsd and the, the most successful cases that i've read about i mean i haven't dug too deep into it but i've come across it um it was like one, two, three sessions, it wasn't this like drug that they're constantly taking. So what the the plant medicine did is yes, it brought some of these subconscious things to the surface. It helped them have a perspective on it. And then they were able from there to use that springboard to start to think a little bit differently, Mm -hmm. to um, do do things differently Mm -hmm. in their life. So uh, yeah, like this is not, it's not a fix. No one... Uh, you know, I would. I don't think anyone could just take mushrooms and then all of a sudden like wake up and be like, "I'm self actualized." Like it, yeah. it doesn't work that way. Um, but it is a way of changing your state. But you know, as you said, Josh, there's plenty of ways to change your state. You don't have to take mushrooms to change your state. But and, and I, I'm not against drugs. To be no, clear, right. in
1: fact, I've done ketamine five times, um, doctor assisted, like intravenous ketamine, uh, when I was going through my worst health issues back in 2019. And I thought I was dying. And I'm like, well, I need to figure out like this despair, right? Mm -hmm. And so my doctor recommended it and I went through that. And the first time I did it, I experienced the ego death that people talk about. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced it several times since without the assistance of any of these so-called shortcuts, right? And the problem that I have with the shortcut is not the drug itself, but thinking it's going to give me Mm -hmm. that shortcut. And of course, there's always diminishing returns, as Ryan just illuminated, like... Someone who goes and does mushrooms every other weekend or something isn't going to get this. They're, they're chasing the dragon at that point, right? right. And thinking uh, it's a pleasure chase, right? Mm-hmm. And any chase is actually a, a a pleasure chase of some sort, right? We we strive, we chase, we pursue, thinking that happiness, peace, joy is found elsewhere, right? Whereas at their best, any of these plant medicines can open up a window through which we can now see the world
4: differently. Yeah. I believe it was uh, Ram Das who likened psychedelics to a telescope. Uh, or maybe it was Alan Watts, but he likened it to a telescope, saying, if you look through a telescope, you can see things that you can't see with the naked eye. But once one sees them, he must eventually walk away from the telescope. <laughs> And move on with life with an awareness of what he has seen, but you can't live in that state forever. Right. You know, I've got some mixed feelings on it. On one end, I I understand when people say things like, look, you don't need psychedelics in order to achieve an altered state of consciousness. But it is also true that we don't say that about other things like would I snatch an orange out of your hand and say, you don't need that orange for Mm. vitamin C. (laughs) You can get the (laughs) vitamin C within yourself. I mean, nature has given us many Mm -hmm. things with many properties, and I think it's worth the time to investigate what is there in nature and to see how it affects us when we interact with it in a healthy way. I like the words of Terrence McKenna here, who says your first psychedelic trip should be to the library. And he didn't mean that you have to take an (laughs) academic, overly intellectualized approach to it, but rather don't take these things lightly. Investigate them, know what you're doing, because in the same way that they can help you, they can also harm you. Because they're not just medicines, they're also mirrors. And that's contained in the name itself. I believe the word psychedelic means something like mind manifesting or Mm. entheogens means God within. Mm -hmm. And so you are bringing yourself forward or going within to take a deeper look at your truer self. And if you've got stuff that you're not ready to deal with, (laughs) Mm. a psychedelic experience could really mess you up and traumatize you in a way such that you're worse off than you were before. So I don't think it's healthy to go into it frivolously like a game. You want to be in a healthy environment, a healthy setting, and have a healthy understanding that precedes any experimentation. I would encourage anybody interested in this to take a look at MAPS. I believe Mm -hmm. that stands for the Multidisciplinary Approach to Psychedelic Studies. Mm -hmm. And they're taking a very rigorously scientific approach to it, as I understand it, um, and talking about different aspects of it. And um, I definitely second the words of McKenna, make your first psychedelic trip, if not your only, (laughs) to the library and understand what you're getting into. Does that mean she should just eat some mushrooms and go to the library?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate that little disclaimer a bit because as I see it, you know, and as I hear people speaking about really transformative experiences, I think it can become really natural to set that expectation that it be that for us. And I'll just share from my own personal experience of being a teenager, experimenting with psychedelics myself and having had one of the worst trips of my life where I thought I was dying and Mm. never wanted to go Mm. back to it for a very long time. Mm. Because again, without that container, I didn't have a connection to myself. I didn't know how to regulate my body. I now have language for why it was so terrible. But when I was living it, it was Mm. an absolute nightmare. And again, something that really shook me for a very long time and prevented me from even... And entertaining, engaging with it again, and now obviously a different context with many more tools, supportive environments. So, to speak to that point, there are so many organizations and even practitioners, clinical psychologists now who's based their practice on that level of containment of Mm -hmm. that safe space because having a bad experience, you know, is it can be really, really destabilizing, frightening, and, Mm -hmm. you know, it can be something then that we bring with us and it isn't, you know, necessarily as positive. And just hearing how positive it is. Is being yeah. painted. I'm really appreciating that you kind of just brought that piece up.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, these are these plant medicines. Um, if you take them recreationally, then I mean, that's a possibility. I mean, it, it's it's funny because like ketamine <laughs> and you know psilocybin, whatever it is, like you know in high school, like yeah, like these were all party drugs, right. but they're not party yeah. drugs, <laughs> yeah. like not at all. And um, yeah, it's like if you go into it all willy nilly without uh, a safe space, without um, respecting the medicine that you're you're taking and its effects, um, then yeah, I mean you could be setting yourself up for something pretty bad.
1: And that's true with any other drug as well mm, that yeah. have been turned into party drugs, whether it's Adderall or alcohol. Yeah, people use these things, and then all of a sudden it becomes a crutch. We have a dependency, and eventually that
3: dependency turns into an addiction. I don't know why, man, but like we as human beings are constantly trying to separate ourselves from ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, even think about, think about astronauts leaving the planet. Like, I don't know what that is, but there's something about us. So, like, we're constantly trying to like separate ourselves from whatever we are. I mean, maybe it's to escape pain or whatever it is, or to seek pleasure. But I well, we find that fascinating. I think it's quite often because we think we are separate. Mm-hmm.
1: And, yeah, and, as opposed to recognizing that I am the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wasn't uh, born into the universe. I was born out of the universe. Yeah. Let's check in with our live stream. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Malabama, do we have any questions?
6: We have a question here from Catherine. She says, I recently caught up with an old friend I haven't seen since we were teenagers. He's married with kids now. I'm not. I'm really happy for him and I care about our friendship, but I can't relate to him. How can I keep the focus on my journey so I don't feel like I'm somehow behind?
1: Interesting. So, Nicole, uh, it sounds like what she's not saying here, although it could be read this way, how do I keep the focus on me in our conversation? But I think what she's saying here is she feels a sense of inadequacy. Hmm. I am supposed to do something. There are all kinds of shoulds that are embedded in this question. I should have gotten married by now. I should have had kids. And of course, I should own a home. I should live in this city. I should have this type of job or role in my life. I should be part of a community. I should have gotten my doctorate. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, right? The only problem is when we think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And if I'm not doing that, it is therefore a failure on my part.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the tendency, what on the surface I'm hearing in the question is that really natural human tendency to compare, to look. Mm -hmm. And now many of us have the friend maybe that we haven't seen for many years or the internet that's full of a, a ton of people that we can use as that point of comparison. And when it really comes down to it in terms of our biology, our evolution, I mean, there is value to some extent of having a self-assessment, of having a point of comparison, because at our core, we all need community. We all mm-hmm. need that safe space. It's how we've evolved as a species. So having an assessment of how I'm being perceived and how I kind of compare and or fit in to my my group, whatever that might be, is necessary or at one point was necessary for our survival. Of course, there's so many of us now with the internet landscape of a million types of comparisons where we get stuck in that. And then that is grounded in all of these ideas of of should and what Mm. is supposed to be for me. And this goes back to even the conversation where we're talking about self-actualization when the beauty of the human experience is to really come to that awareness that it's all within us that we are all the universe and that we're exactly where we're meant to be at every any time when we're able to get rid of the shoulds the comparison and just allow us to be with ourselves as we are i think a lot of times we think actualizing and all of these things are something to achieve or you know advance to and in reality i see it as something to drop in. And mm-hmm. we can drop in when we're not. And a byproduct to speak to that point of presence, if we're comparing ourselves, we might feel less present to ourselves in that conversation. If I'm hearing you share something and I'm only running a litany of, oh, geez, I didn't check that box. And oh mm, my gosh, yeah. oh, I'm not going to say this because mm. it sounds different than what he's saying. So what will you think of me? Right? Now I'm not even present to myself in that moment. Right? I'm lost mm. in thought and in comparison. But I wanted to speak to that point in terms of, and I actually Did a podcast on the Self-Healer Soundboard myself around comparison and how it is natural. So not even to judge ourselves if we notice those comparisons, but to maybe dive in, have that deeper Mm. exploration, decide for ourselves if we're happy with where we are and allow then that to be our self-expression as opposed to what we're not, what someone else might think. And again, all this comes back to actualizing by just being who we are.
3: Mm -hmm. Comparison kills joy. It also kills the moment. (laughs) Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah. You know, it it reminds me of this meme I recently saw where there's this mom who's really stressing out, trying to get her kids ready for a Christmas picture and there's the single person (laughs) looking at the mom just laughing at them like, haha, you have it so bad. I have it so good. Glad I don't have kids. And then finally at the end of that long process, the mom comes out with this beautiful Christmas picture Mm. and the single friend looks at the picture and says, oh, you're so lucky. Yeah. Mm. So many times when we make those comparisons, we're looking at the photogenic moments that make us say, wow, Mm -hmm. I wish I had that. But we forget about all of the costs that were involved costs that we ourselves probably would not be willing to pay if mm-hmm. the opportunity opportunity presented it to us today. And so it can be helpful to remind yourself when you look at someone who has something you don't have, it can be helpful to remind yourself that you could have had that because you can have anything if you're willing to do anything. Mm-hmm. But you also probably had some standards and some other priorities. That said, hey I think it's cool to be married or to have children or to have that new car, but not at the expense of every other thing, not at any risk. I don't want to be married so bad that I'm just willing to marry anybody, even (laughs) if they're not compatible. I don't want a new car so bad that I'm willing to stress myself out and sell my soul for the money doing things that I don't really want to do. And so my life, even if it's not the way I want it to be, is a reflection of the priorities I have had up until this time. And if I don't like the way my life looks now, I'm free to change it But there's no use in regretting it and saying, I wish I had what they had, because you would just be experiencing regret in a different set of shoes had you acted in discordance with the priorities you had at that time.
0: Ooh, ooh, preach, right?
1: <laughs> Dr. Nicole LaPera, I just want to say this. This is your third time on the show. You are one of the few guests where we have an open door policy with you. If you are in Los Angeles, <laughs> you can come Thank here you. anytime. We're so grateful for you. I'll encourage folks to check out your new book, your new workbook, How to Meet Yourself. It is more than a traditional workbook. It is a book you will... It will accept you as opposed to (laughs) repel you like most workbooks (laughs) do. And it'll even better help you accept yourself. We got a lot more to talk about on the private podcast, but let's say a big thanks to Dr. Nicole LaPera. Thanks so much for being here. Thank
7: you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: We'll put a link to your podcast in the show notes. Also, millions and millions and millions of people find value in what you create for social media. We'll make sure we put a link to all of your social media accounts in the show notes as well. You can find those at theminimalists.com slash podcast. Of course, there'll be a link to your new book in there. As well. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you all for having me.
3: Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok.
1: Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists during the lightning round. This is where we each have 60 seconds on the clock to answer your questions with a short shareable less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. If you'd like, you can find those show notes at theminimalists.com slash podcast, or we deliver them straight to your inbox every Monday for free. We'll never send you spam or junk or advertisements, but if you're on our email list, we'll send you our minimal maxims each week, our podcast show notes. And every Thursday, we also have the simple newsletter. In Alabama, it looks like Hannah from TikTok has a question for us.
6: I go by the Fred Rogers idea of look for the helpers, but you warn that helpers could enable more problems. Where does the desire to help come from? And how do we know when to act on it?
1: So Danny Unknown, for some context real quick, before we start the clock, Danny Unknown, he put up a TikTok on our TikTok account, which social jest, then she shared, right? Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, she's out right now on maternity leave. Congratulations oh, to yeah. Social
3: Jess. I'm so excited for her and her husband.
1: Yeah, They uh, they have their first kid now. Yeah. And um, it was so late that they named it TK Coleman. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because TK is always late. <laughs> <laughs> this is the main reason Ryan wanted to bring you on board. That's <laughs> right. Someone who's later than me.
4: See, that's so wrong. <laughs> I, I feel like I beat Ryan here so many times. Well, that la- I'm like Dennis <laughs> Robin it's like my reputation is so bad <laughs> that it's gonna take at least three years of being the first guy here to even remotely <laughs> right. become associated well, Josh with Josh gets time. here like
3: six a.m. So uh, <laughs> good
4: luck.
1: <laughs> well, the Dennis Rodman thing is mainly because you walked in here with a nose ring and a wedding dress,
3: on. <laughs> and you, you had uh, leper spotted hair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, dude, we put, see, r- come on though, Dennis Rodman. That is so badass, oh man! Oh uh, like, yeah, yeah. He's dude, punk rock. He real. is so punk rock, dude.
1: Anyway, we put this. <laughs> video up on TikTok. <laughs> and it basically said, hey, the helper is one of the most dangerous people in the world because Ooh. he will tear an eagle out of the sky to keep him
3: from falling or tear a fish out of the sea to keep him from drowning. You know, this is... So the helper is an actual Enneagram personality trait. That's right. And um, this would be like the unhealthy version of the helper. Oh, yeah. And so when I One I ta- of the things. Yeah. Exactly. And so go ahead and put 60 seconds on the clock for me, Professor Sean.
1: I'll give you something pithy, and we'll unpack this together. To support someone is to accept them for who they are without trying to change them, manipulate them, or persuade them. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about support. Mm-hmm. When I'm talking about help, I'm talking about someone who forces someone to change, manipulates them, moves them in my direction, convinces them, coerces them to my point of view. And that's when helping someone becomes unhealthy. If you want to help someone in the Fred Rogers sense, because you want to provide support for them when they need support, oh, I really need to lean against you, TK. TK has allowed me to lean against him. Ryan has certainly allowed me to lean against him. It has helped me, but he wasn't looking to help me in those scenarios. He was looking to be that support structure so that I could be the best version of me.
3: Yeah. All right. Give me 60 seconds. I'm about to flow. (laughs) Oh man. Uh, My pithy answer is this. You can't help someone who doesn't desire help. And I think this is where the big problem is with, with uh, people who go out of their way to just help other people. Now, the look for the helpers, that whole philosophy, I love that. Because, you know, during times of distress, we want to look for the people who are there to, to support, who are there to, um, you know, help wherever the help is desired and needed. Hmm. But the problem is what Josh just said. When we try to help someone who doesn't want help, like that's that's where, um, A, we're not doing that person any service and uh, we're definitely doing ourselves a disservice. So I remember um, someone asked me to sit down with someone else. I'm trying to like be as ambiguous as possible. And they were like, this person really needs your help. And so I was like 27, 28 years old. And I said, all right, I'm going to help them. And I sat down in stone cold face and I realized like, oh, this person doesn't want to be helped. And that is where I learned that lesson. Mm -hmm. Ryan, it's um,
1: the thing about the helper, the spirit of the Fred Rogers maxim here look for the helpers. What he's really saying here is look for the supporters, the people who are willing to support you when you are asking for that help. Mm -hmm. When I'm talking about the danger of the helper, I'm talking about the person who goes around and tries to change everyone because they end up shooting all over everyone else. We were were talking about this on the, the private podcast earlier about when you start to identify the universal shoulds for other people. Yeah, let Let me tell you what's wrong with you. Yes. Let me tell you what you should be doing. Let me me tell you what you need. Right. Let me drag you to success, kicking and screaming. Well, that's not success, it's failure. And so if I am forcing help upon you, then no one is helped. I feel bad because you didn't make the change. And then you feel bad because I was manipulating you, changing you, and also now you feel like you should do the thing that I wanted you to do. Mm-hmm. Let's throw 60 seconds on the clock for TK Coleman.
4: Yeah, if you're trying to be a hero for someone that would rather save themselves, then you're really just a villain in disguise. You're a villain with a cool Halloween costume. Mm-hmm. You're most helpful when you respect other people's intention to evolve. If someone is saying, hey, no, please don't save me. I've got it, I'm okay even if I'm struggling a little bit, I want to work through this process on my own and do it without you. And you insist, no, I'm going to help you. Then that's really not for them. That's just for their ego. And as I heard it said before, of all crimes, the greatest treason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And that's the wrong reason to help anybody. I'm helping them so that I can feel useful independently of my actual usefulness to them based on their priorities, based on their preferences, based on their stated needs.
1: Mm -hmm. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. I wrote down 12 years of minimalist. I think we need to do an episode called that because this week, Ryan Nicodemus, you and I, we ponied up $7 (laughs) and we bought this little domain called theminimalists.com. I still owe you three fifty. dollars (laughs) Thanks for reminding me. (laughs) Ryan's close to being (laughs) debt-free. And so if you look December 14th, 2010, and you've got a hyphen, actually technically be an in-dash, but we'll get into that in some other How to Write Better podcast episode. And then you have now, which is December 2022, we have 12 years. And the thing that I realized just yesterday, Ryan, is that we have now been doing the minimalism thing for longer than we did the corporate world thing it's Wild this week. It's so wild. I was 12 years in the corporate world, climbed the corporate ladder, achieved mm. all of this success. So we're at this, it's equidistant for us right now. We're at mm. this middle point where it's 24 years of corporate on one side, minimalism on the other side. And there's a whole lot that's represented by that little hyphen between 2010 and 2022. We've done so much over the course of these 12 years. I never anticipated us making a documentary let alone two mm-hmm. or the Emmy nominations or the books or starting this podcast. Yeah, being a New York Times bestseller. Oh, Joshua wow. Fields Millburn. Fancy. <laughs> and and what I what I've realized is that all of the moments that really mattered in, in between 2010 and now, it has something to do not with achievement, like a New York Times thing or Emmy nomination or whatever else. It has to do with the people who we've helped heal. And that Mm -hmm. healing started with ourselves. And that's what Dr. Nicole's book is really about. It's about self healing in a way. And this journey allowed us to heal ourselves and share how we have healed And that enabled a lot of healing in other people, a lot of self-healing for them as well. Speaking of, on a personal note, uh, this week, I'm going overseas for a stem cell treatment. And so I'll be gone for a week. I've had this terrible autoimmune disease for the last four years. And so while I'm gone, Bex and I are going to fly overseas. I'm going to do this week-long stem cell thing, hoping that it improves my my autoimmune condition. And in the process, I'm going to be listening to my favorite albums from 2022. And so every year for the last, I guess, 12 years now, I've put out a list of my favorite albums of the year. Sorry, TK. Once again, no Christmas album has made this list.
4: So th- <laughs> did, did Bieber have a 2022 album? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs>
1: but uh, there's a whole list. Uh, if you are on our email list, that'll come out to you this week. You can also find it at slash sound, as in the sound of life. Music's been a very important part of my journey and us being the minimalists. We're always bringing musicians on the road with us when we do tour stops, we've been doing the Sunday symposiums with live music. And live music, or just music in general, creates a soundtrack for our lives. Mm-hmm. And so, if you want to find some of my favorite music from the last 12 months, com slash sound or sign up for our email list. It'll show up right there in your inbox. And you can also let me know. Send me a, a tweet or a message on any of the social media platforms. Let me know what your favorite album of the year was. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream real quick, Malabama. You got a question for us?
6: I sure do. Here's a question from Minimalist Gecko. I spend nearly half of my income and a ton of time traveling to my job. But my partner insists that the stability and benefits make it worthwhile. How do I explain to them the misery it's causing me doesn't make it worth it to me?
1: It's worth your misery, TK. Mm. I love that you get to decide.
4: (laughs) Isn't that the best when other people tell folks what's worth their time? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. But I, I get the complexity when it's a spouse, right? Yeah. Or when it's a significant other. It it feels like the rules ought to be different, right? I mean, how do you tell your significant other the same way you told us? You tell them truthfully. You tell them eye to eye. You tell them face to face. You tell them with transparency and 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 conviction. And, and you you tell them with all the feeling that is there, right? I I know that you say it's worthwhile for me to do this, and I understand why it's worthwhile to you, and I still want to fight. For what's worthwhile to you, but I need to fight in a way that doesn't erode my soul. I need mm-hmm. to fight in a way that doesn't make me dead inside. I need to fight in a way that allows me to still show up and be a self that actually has the capacity to enjoy the benefits of my work. And I'm losing me in the quest for this thing that is supposed to be worthwhile at the expense of my own soul. I never knew what selling my soul looked like, but now I'm starting to get a glimpse of what that might be for me. I think you got to just say it like it is. Mm. You know, say it like it is. And yeah. then say, is there a way we we can fight together for what's worthwhile mm-hmm. without it being something that makes me feel like my life is hell? Mm. Is it DeMello, the uh, I could prove to you that you don't want to be happy? Yes.
3: Yeah. Mm. And uh, it's so, it's just so true. Uh, so what does he say, Josh? He says... So he's got this book called Awareness. And he says...
1: You don't want to be happy. The the, the first step in becoming happy is realizing that you don't want to become happy. Right Now, what does that mean? You don't want to be happy. Yes, yes, I do. No, you don't. I can prove it to you. Mm -hmm. I want you to go to the person who's closest to you or one of the people closest to you and say, I would rather have happiness than have you. Mm. Yeah. Imagine how difficult it is to say that. Yeah. And it's difficult to say that because we think, well, there's a lot of hubris caught up in this as well. I need to be your source of happiness and I need you to be my source of happiness. But what happens here in those cases is that is now conditional love, which is not love at all. Love with conditions is like, or in this case, it is misery. It creates a particular kind of misery. I need you to need me Mm. and I need you. And therefore, we're both unhappy, but at least we're
3: unhappy together. Yeah, yeah. And so, from that perspective, there's just something about um, realizing that okay, we're not happiness is not the ultimate goal. But you know, to get practical with this question, it's what your partner wants is stability and security. So that if you want to get your partner on board, you have to show them. That you're still able to provide that security and stability. It might be in a different way. Maybe it's a little less money, but th- the amount of money doesn't really matter as long as your partner still feels that sense of security. So that's mm-hmm. that's what I would, you know, challenge this person to think, to a minimalist gecko to think, like, how can you show your partner that you're still going to provide what what they need? Yeah,
4: or By what the they way- desire by the way, I, I spent a lot, of t- a lot of time in my life being kind of like a pushover mm-hmm. um, where I would be truly angry at people and truly upset with the way they were treating me. And, and I just couldn't understand why they wouldn't respect my consistent pleas. You know, somebody maybe would push me a certain way and I'd be like, come on, man, chill, stop. And they do it again. Come on, man, stop, you know, chill, chill, chill out, mm-hmm. man. And they do it again. And I just couldn't understand it. Like I'm verbalizing that I don't like this. I'm literally saying, come on, man, chill. You know, I'm... I, I, I'm honestly showing how I want to be bothered. And I would, I would resent people because I would feel like you're, you're making me evil. Like Mm. you need me to be the kind of person who's going to punch you in the face in order for you to get the point that I don't like what you're doing. And so then I started to get really upset at people.
1: Mm. And, and that's never helpful. That's never helpful.
4: Especially with Gecko's
1: question here, bringing that emotion into this. Hey, you are making me miserable. Mm." That is a way to escalate, and then the other person becomes defensive, and then you become defensive, or you become offensive, and they become offensive, and you're creating World War III in your household, as opposed to simply saying, hey, this is making me miserable. Mm -hmm. Can we work together Mm
4: -hmm. so you can
1: help me find an off-ramp for my own misery?
4: That's right. That's right. And, And what I learned from that is people don't respond to how you feel on the inside, and they don't always respond to... Uh, your verbalization of emotion. But what they respond to is the commitment you have to establishing a boundary and still being able to love them from within that boundary. So what changed for me is when I started telling people, hey, look, when I say chill, I really mean it. I need that to stop. I need that to be the last time that it ever happens. Now, we can be cool. We can still be homies. But if that's a boundary that can't be respected, we can't be cool we can be homies, but I really need that to stop, yeah. right? And I think in this case, you don't have to say, look, you can, you can, you can uh, take the highway or my way. But I think there is space to say, hey, look, I truly can't do this anymore. I'm no longer physically and psychologically available for this particular thing. I thought I could, but I was wrong. However, I am totally committed to figuring out what's best for us. I'm totally committed to getting the things that we agree that we're going to get or having a conversation about what a viable alternative would be. But I can't go about it this way. Mm. I think that's fair. We have several more questions from the
1: live stream. We'll check in with those later on the private podcast. But before we get to our listener tip today, coming up on the Maximal episode this week, we've got a million more questions for Dr. Nicole LaPera. You can uh, check her out over there. She answered a bunch of questions with us. We also have some more questions from social media and the live stream. We've got a private minimalist home tour. Nicodemus will be joining us for that one. We have our Amass It or Trash It segment. TK's Tweet of the Week. We have an outstanding added value segment. It's my favorite piece of clothing. I'll just leave it at that. Mm. Added value, my favorite piece of clothing. And we've got much, much more of less. And if you want to hear all that, check out the minimalist private podcast at patreon.com slash the minimalist Malabama. What else you got for us?
6: Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners.
8: Hi, this is Claire from Bellevue. I recently discovered your podcast and love it. I got rid of 85% of the books I had hoarded slash purchased from Goodwill. And how I did that was I asked myself a few questions. Would I want to move this crap across the country or to another state? Would I want to put this crap in a storage container and pay for it? I also looked up my books to see if they were at my local library. And if they were, I tagged it as for later and then donated the book. I also was holding on to all these vintage National Geographic photography type of books. And I realized that I preferred new mediums for the same information. For example, the information in the books, I strongly preferred listening to podcasts and audiobooks. Now, I would never sit down and read those books. The photography, I would much rather sit and watch an HD video or DVD of planet Earth. So I just went at a rapid pace. And now I'm much happier with the books that I do own because they're facing fine outwards on the one bookshelf that remains. This is Elizabeth from Houston, Minnesota.
0: And like many families, we have struggled with calendar clutter. I felt like I was always telling people, we should get together, but then rarely following through. A few years ago, we started Monday Funday, where every Monday in June through August, we host a potluck gathering at our house. We usually run 5 p.m. to dark. It's a no-pressure, no-obligation event. We set up outside, and we get anywhere from 20 to 40 people every week. We don't make any special changes around the house or do any extra special cleaning. Our guests just get to see us as we are. Now, when I run into family and friends, I just invite them to Monday Funday. I find we have stronger, better connections with people and less stress about schedules and obligations.
1: Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Before we get to our other simple living segments this week, let's read some more about less. Since we just had Dr. Nicole LaPera here for a while, I thought we'd read a little excerpt from her book called How to Meet Yourself. And I like here that yourself is separated into two words because it's yourself. It's you observing yourself and understanding that like, You aren't this one particular role. There is a self behind all of these masks that we wear. And this is from early in the book. It's page nine. And it is called Create a Sensory Experience. So keep in mind, this is a workbook. And so what she's doing is she's laying out things that we can do to change our state. And one of those is to create a sensory experience. I do some of these things well. Some of these things I'd like to start incorporating. Using your senses helps ground you or shift your attention away from your thinking mind to what's happening in your body or in your surroundings. This can be incredibly helpful when your thoughts are causing stress or emotional overwhelm. Using the list below, pick one activity to practice this sensory grounding exercise after spending a few moments reconnecting with your senses, check in with how your body feels. Number one, light a candle and spend a few moments simply watching its flame. Now, that sounds like a meditative practice mm, of
3: Boring. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. And any of these things are boring because we're so used to the stimuli machine yeah. in our pocket, the dopamine dump that we are constantly seeking. and in a way we need to reconnect with the boring.
3: Yeah, we do. We got to be we have to be able to deal with that boring. What I love about this exercise is that's a great way to confront boredom.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I love the the sensory experience, but specifically, you have the visual here. You have a kinesthetic experience. If you're close enough to a flame, you will feel that. Mm-hmm. But of course, the scent of the candle is connecting with Your senses there as well. So you're connecting with your senses, your sensory experience on multiple fronts. The second one here is burn some incense and spend a few moments smelling its aroma. So a similar thing there um, where you are grounding in your sense experience. You're grounding in the moment as opposed to where it's not, hey, light some incense and then worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Mm. Now that will happen naturally If you reconnect with the thing, the sensory experience in the moment, it becomes a meditative practice as well. A couple more here. Grab a slice of orange or other juicy fruit and spend a few moments as you slowly bite its flesh and taste its juices. Bex and I went to this meditation. By the way, Bex is here today. What's wrong? She's getting ready to spit something up. (laughs) Um, they can't hear you. You're not on mic. Okay. So we uh, went to this um, meditative. It was like a um, mindfulness practice and they gave us these raspberries and had us chew on them for like three to five, like one raspberry chew on it for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And you realize how bitter raspberries actually are when you are grounded in the moment. Now, other times I'll just grab a handful of raspberries and, It tastes like nothing, right? Mm Because it's not sweet enough. It's not juicy enough. It's not whatever enough, right? But no, it is enough. When I'm really connected with the sense in the moment, I'm able to enjoy that raspberry, but not just enjoy it, but experience it in a way that I'm so used to tuning out because I'm paying attention to everything else that isn't going on in front of me. Mm. A couple more here. Number four, find your pet or favorite blanket and spend a few moments rubbing your hands over its softness. That's what I do with back so I rub my hands over her softness
5: <laughs>
1: uh, and so we're talking about connecting with the kinesthetics here, right mm-hmm. at that same meditation that we did we they had us like grab different like sticks and things that allowed us to embrace those senses as well, and you realize all the things that are boring, mundane part of. Everyday life that are worthy of ignoring are actually worth paying attention to. Mm. And finally, put your favorite music, like my music, uh, the slash sound, if you want to find that list, and spend a few moments listening to the sounds and melodies. So, music can be a soundtrack that's on in the background and amplify our mood or enhance the mood or, or magnify it in a way. Or if you're actually paying attention to the music, I think this is why live music is such an immersive experience because you are just there staring at the person or persons playing this music. And all of a sudden that's all that's going on. And it mm-hmm. gives you this sense of elation because partially because of music, but mm-hmm. I think also because of the focus.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting how with like certain bands, like Joshua James is a great example. Um, when he first played me his album, I was like, oh, it was all right. Build me this. Yeah. And then I went and saw him live. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God. Like, I, like now I listen to that album and I hear it completely different than what I heard it before. Because, like, there, there was so much nuance and, you know, not just the music, but um, who he is as a person and how much, you know, he loves his own music. Like, I mean, that's what really makes a concert great. Like, when you can tell... Like the person who's playing the music, like how, like, it's why like a lot of jazz, like seeing live jazz is amazing. Like just to see how much they love, they love
4: playing music. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about Dr. Nicole's approach is just how great she is at helping people get back into their bodies and helping them embrace the sensual corporal aspects of health. I think a lot of self-help is influenced by this sort of Gnostic worldview that the body is evil and the spirit or soul or immaterial self is good and this is a prison and the goal of life of spirituality of self actualization is to get to this almost purely mental ethereal state where we're neither hampered nor distracted by the passions of the body and it's so important to embrace this fact that we are incarnate beings we are physical beings and this is a beautiful part of who we are and you know if you if you preach this philosophy all the time that says it doesn't matter you know, what you smell or what you eat or where you are or your physical environment, then we put ourselves into this state where we make the the process of self-actualization all intellectual. It's all about thinking positive thoughts in spite of the fact that my body is in a bad way, my diet's in a bad way, I'm in a stinky environment around stinky things. But when you say, well, wait a minute, maybe some of what's in my locus of control is my posture, is my breath, Maybe I'm not rich enough to go live in that place, but I can get some incense. I can find some non-electronic art to look at. I can get outside and go touch a tree and breathe some fresh air and let my feet hit the ground and walk. When we get back into our bodies, we find the fulfillment of that quote that says, it's not just about thinking your way into a new way of living, but it's about living your way into a new way of thinking. New possibilities happen when we get back in our bodies and we get grounded and we embrace the fact that, yeah, this physical stuff, not just my body, but the clothes, my ability to touch you, all this stuff, what I smell, what I see, this stuff is good. Mm. Let me try to make this work for me.
1: That's so good, man. We, uh, we were talking about this earlier with respect to anxiety, but I think it a- applies to all of these other areas as well. Depression, despair, how do we let go of those things? Well, the only way we let go is to stop holding on. And I gave some basic practices that I do with respect to breathing exercises that can be really helpful. Of course, they seem silly and we form a resistance to those things, mm-hmm. right? Bex and I were doing the Wim Hof method together the other day. He's got this great video on YouTube that walks you through it's an 11 minute breathing exercise. And by the end of it, not only do you lose the resistance, but you feel. Euphoric, and you wonder why I ever had the resistance in the first place. Mm. We've been doing the cold plunge recently as well, uh, which you'll see during the home tour portion of today's private podcast. And I've been, for the last several years before that, been doing cold showers every day. So every single day for many years, I've been doing a cold shower. Mm -hmm. And every day I have a bit of resistance, but every time afterward, I'm thankful I did it. Yeah. And the same thing is true if I want to change my state by sprinting, you know, just running really quickly up a hill that isn't far from our house. I will do that. And at first I'm like, oh, I got to get out of bed and I got to go do whatever. And the resistance is there, right? But as soon as I've done it, it's like, "Oh, oh, yes, it's not. It's the opposite of resistance. It is. I'm so grateful I got to do that. In fact, I want to do it again. And so it's almost priming the pump for that. And finally, the last thing there is the hugs. Hugging someone at first is like, okay,
3: whatever. Consensual hugging.
1: Yes. yes. All (laughs) all of these things I'm talking about are consensual.
4: (laughs) That's always the underlying assumption of everything we talk about.
1: (laughs) Oh, shoot. I mean, I do force Ryan to have consensual hugs with me occasionally. (laughs) Oh shoot! Let's move on to a talk aboutable real quick. So I stumbled across this, and I meant to talk about this talk aboutable on the intentional travel episode that we did last week. So I'm carrying it forward to this one. It's a comedian. We'll put a link to this video in. It's an Instagram video. We just have the audio here playing. We'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can actually take a a look at it if you want. But let's just listen to this. This is these are just some funny thoughts on van life and tiny homes.
7: The real tragedy of the generation is they're
1: not just admitting that they're broke. (laughs) You notice that? They're always trying to jazz it up. Like, people are moving into vans and they're trying to make it seem cool. (laughs) Like, talk about not accepting your fate. I'm a blogger. You're homeless. (laughs) You moved into your vehicle and you have the audacity to hashtag it? (laughs) If you're moving into your car, you probably want to do that quietly. (laughs) Put that shit on the internet. The tiny house movement, I love that. We live in a tiny home. What a great rebranding of trailer. (laughs) You live in a mobile home, dog. (laughs) <laughs> so, so Ryan, you grew up in trailers, mm-hmm. and um, I actually love the. I, I did disagree with the comic totally because I love the rebranding. Yeah, I love the taking control and saying, "Hey, you know what? That's not a bad thing." Yeah, societally, we look at oh trailer trash. Nope. I live in a tiny home. Mm-hmm. And the irony is I actually live in a tiny home. Our, our, we have a converted garage. It's about 200 square feet. And mm-hmm. and so I live in a very tiny space. I don't call it a tiny home because labels don't do a whole lot for me, but I guess effectively it is. Mm-hmm. Or I, even worse, I could say I live in a garage. What, you live in a garage? What is wrong with you? Mm. No, it's freaking awesome. Yeah, And so it's not just about taking control, it's what he said. It is accepting the fact that if you want to go live in your van, mm-hmm. to me, I think that's awesome. I have no desire to live in a van personally, but Social Jess, they're building out their little bus that they're going to be living the van life really soon with a kid. Yeah, And you know what? I'm not going to prescribe my preferences onto her and vice versa.
4: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I love the rebranding. And I think that the ability to laugh at jokes about the rebranding is precisely what makes the rebranding work, right? Humor is kind of like the fuel for our seriousness. You can be deep, but what makes those depths within you so beautiful and so brilliant is your ability to listen to someone crack jokes about it and just laugh at yourself. Because what's the alternative? It's like you take yourself and your ideas and your rebranding and your lifestyle so seriously, but it's so fragile. It can fall apart instantly if someone says, I disagree. I think that's stupid. I think that's goofy. I think that's silly. And it's like, oh no, my whole world's falling apart because (laughs) everyone doesn't respect my simplicity or my minimalism. When you can laugh at yourself and laugh with them and then go back to doing the very thing they laughed at, that's when you're strong and that's when you're free and that's when things work. Yeah. Yeah, I
3: did grow up in a a trailer a little bit. Um, Something about trailer parks is it's it's impoverished people um, a lot of the times. And when you have an impoverished situation... Uh, people do all sorts of things. And what I love about the tiny house movement and the van life movement and whatever else, small, you know, living space movement is that it is showing that, Hey, you know what? You actually don't need a ton of money to be happy. And, you know, unfortunately, when we think about trailer parks, we do think about trailer trash. Um, of course not me. I was never trailer trash. But everyone, it was everybody, else. right? It was everyone else around <laughs> me. Um, no, but but you know, we, we do think about that because of the results of poverty, and like I don't want to take the uh the subject, um, I don't want to dismiss it because it it's an it's a situation that can create some you know bad things for sure. Um, but again, like I do like the rebranding because yeah, I mean, it's showing like hey, look, like you could. Just have, you could have a mobile home and you could be happy mm-hmm. and you can do it intentionally. And here are the advantages, you know, and That that's the key, the intentionality.
1: So mm-hmm. what you're talking about, there are plenty of trailer parks that don't have any of the nonsense that occurred in the trailer park that you grew up. Remember Tom Shadiac, his movie, I Am? Yeah. When he got rid of his giant mansion, moved into a trailer park, but mm-hmm. it was a really nice trailer park in Malibu. Right. But then there, where Bex and I live up in Ventura County, there are really, really nice mobile home parks. And these just all become puff words that all mean the same thing. I don't care what you call it. but If you're doing it intentionally, Mm -hmm. you can call it a tiny house. You can call it van life. You can call it a mobile home. You can call it an RV. I don't care what you call it. But what's nice is that when you're doing it intentionally, you're building it around your life instead of trying to cram a life into someone else's idea of a dwelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alabama, it's time for a very, very special time. That's what do right. we call this? It
6: is TK's tweet of the week.
3: We need uh, a little. We need a little like music to go we with. We say
6: it. this every week. Yeah. And none of us. Let's singly. do a
3: little jingle. Hey, get <laughs> out your skin flute, Ryan.
1: <laughs> no. no. <laughs> 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 oh shit. <laughs> CK, we got, um, you, we, we were calling it audible today because you saw something that Dr. Nicole LaPera posted on Twitter and you got something for us.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read it, read it. This is yeah. good. This I is mean,
1: good. Well, I'm going
4: Add some things up. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So tweet of the week, Dr. Nicole LaPera. So this is kind of like a tweet exchange of the week. So first, Dr. Nicole. Tweeted today, someone needs to hear this. It's not a measure of strength or of commitment to stay in a dysfunctional relationship. We need to stop viewing breakups or divorces as failures. Sometimes they're great acts of self-love. She was quote tweeted by one Abigail Schreier or Schreier. Um, She has the blue check mark, so she must be legit. (laughs) She quote tweeted and said about Dr. Nicole's tweet, This is the mental health industry's typical view of divorce, a heroic act of self-love. Not a single qualm or caveat about the devastation it often visits on kids. That goes entirely unmentioned. And then Abigail was quote tweeted by one Dan Garrick, who says, the self-help subset of the mental health industry is riddled with narcissism painted as acts of love for oneself. It hardly ever looks downstream or considers the effects it has on those around them.
3: Good grief.
4: Lastly, after I post that I'm excited to meet Dr. Nicole, we're going to be interviewing her, Mm -hmm. Dan Garrick puts as a reply to my post, curious for how much insight she may have on the issue of pervasive narcissism in the self-help, self-care subset of the mental health industry, especially on social media. It appears, from my view, that it has perpetuated narcissism more than anything else. Good grief. So we we got a lot to unpack here. Mm. You know, Nicole started it off with her tweet about divorce, saying that there's nothing basically super strong or super noble about staying in a dysfunctional relationship. And that um,
1: almost seems self evident. As soon as you say that, you realize, like, oh, yeah, there is no nobility in staying in a dysfunctional or toxic relationship. Yeah. Especially if you've gotten to a point, which is the implication of what Dr. Nicole is saying here. Mm -hmm. You've gotten to a point. I mean, it's the same thing we were talking about earlier with the, oh, you don't live in a mobile home, you live in a tiny house. I like rebranding divorce as graduation because sometimes, you can graduate from a relationship, learn something from it. It doesn't mean, well, that means all of my high school experience is bad because I left it behind. Yeah. No, I've just moved on from it. And that's okay to move
4: on. Dude. Well, what I noticed, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead.
3: No, I mean, I, I just, I, I mean, it's like, it's funny because I don't even know why, like uh, Dr. Nicole LaPera said sometimes, like, this is what's needed. So, you know, I think about abusive relationships, physically abusive relationships. And sorry, like there's nothing healthy about that. Yeah, there's going to be some uh, collateral damage either way. Mm-hmm. And that is life. There's always going to be other people affected. She doesn't say anything about not considering. It's it's funny because this is what frustrates me about the replies, the not mentioning of it. Mm-hmm. Well, Well, she's not even considering that. It's like, no, like it's it, it, just because someone doesn't mention something doesn't mean that they don't consider it. And we get this a lot with minimalism and maybe that's why like, I'm so fired up about it. Like it, 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 the, the ironic part is, is the replies are more narcissistic than any of those tweets that we just read. Look at me, look at my point. My point's more valid. Talk about people like me. Um, it's just, it's really uh Twitter is such a cesspool man it's all a cesspool what, what's the quote I just saw someone uh, tweet a quote I said about um, Facebook and Twitter is like reading comments on the bathroom stall <laughs> yes. I mean this is essentially what it is I mean and I'm happy to talk about it because I think it's relevant um, but yeah I mean it is silly that like it, it is just silly that, that people use this megaphone to and, and it looks like they're saying you know look at others but they're really saying look at me
5: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm imagining the office
1: meme where it's a uh, where it's like tweeting comments to others is like reading comments on a bathroom stall. Yeah. Louis C.K. Ryan Nicodemus, CK, <laughs> <laughs> bring us home here Ooh. with uh, with your thoughts on this because I, well, let me ask you a question about it actually, right? So there's a lot of presuming this going on. Oh, yeah. In these quote tweets, whereas Ryan beautifully illustrated it's no, no, no. no. Look at me in my opinion. And no. I see a lot of righteousness in here where as Dr. Nicole was giving people permission to let go, giving people permission to move on, mm-hmm. giving people permission to release a relationship that is no longer serving them for any way or in any way. Right. And so In doing so, that permission being granted, not that she needed to grant them permission, but she's given them permission. And it's almost, it's providing a deeper understanding. Whereas these other people are, if anything, muddying the understanding
4: that she's trying to provide. Mm. Yeah, when I look at the first quote tweet, it says, this is the mental health industry's typical view of divorce a heroic act of self-love, not a single qualm or caveat about the devastation it often visits on kids that goes entirely unmentioned. And when, and when I read that word, this, as in this is the mental health industry's typical view, I ask myself, this as in the view that Dr. Nicole just expressed, or this as in you're responding to a different view and you're using Dr. Nicole's tweet as the opportunity to talk about some view other than the one she expressed. I would need an answer to that question because sometimes that's the sort of thing that happens on Twitter. But when I look at the view that Dr. Nicole expressed, she included that magic word, sometimes. Mm -hmm. She says, sometimes there are great acts of self-love. And I don't know if that's the typical view. In fact, I do know that's not the typical view because to say sometimes is to put a qualification on it that literally means not every time, but there are particular instances. Yes, There are conditions that must be met in order for this thing to occur. Is it possible to become overly casual about things like divorce? Absolutely. Are there people that are like that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They treat divorce like trying on a pair of pants or trying on a pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. They do no critical thinking about who they're with and what love means. And at the first sign of any inconvenience, they go, oh, I'm just going to divorce. Yeah, that's an unhealthy thing. That's a reality. But when you use sometimes, you're talking about certain forms of dysfunctionality that do warrant doing what's safe. But, you know, sometimes what happens online is we react to words not according to what they mean or even according to how the other person is using them, but according to how much we fear someone else that we know might abuse it or misunderstand it or misuse it, right? One time I, I used the word toxic and I, and I talked about how you gotta have the courage to walk away from toxicity and I had someone say to me, you know, um, yeah, but there are lots of people who uh, use the word toxic to refer to anything they don't like. And I said, okay, so do you have a problem with the actual meaning of toxic? Mm-hmm. Or do you have a problem with how somebody are somebody's using it? right? Mm-hmm. Because the word toxic just means poison. Toxicity is something that's poisonous. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I think it's pretty axiomatic or close to it to say, hey, walk away from toxicity. But if you want to have a conversation about the fact that there are some people who label things toxic that are not actually toxic, yeah, we can have a conversation about that. But not if you're going to sit here and try to hold me responsible for how someone else might abuse... the meaning of a term. But sometimes we have that going on and we get muddied. Who are we actually arguing with? Who are we Mm. actually having the conversation with? This person and the view that they expressed or some voice in my head or somebody else that I'm arguing with who might misuse that in a way that bothers me. Dude, when people,
3: when people, they build a straw man argument, like the word toxic, toxic is this, And then they build an argument off of what they say toxic is, and people do this with minimalism a lot. Oh, minimalism is just getting rid of your stuff. Therefore, it doesn't work for poor people. It's like, well, if you're talking about having as little money as possible and getting rid of all your stuff, then like, okay, like I can agree with that perspective. But like, that's but but we're going off of the basis of your definition of minimalism is just getting rid of stuff. Um, Yeah, I don't know, man. I you know. The other thing that frustrates me about this is people hide behind the excuse of kids. And I'm not trying to undermine how much we need to really take care of children and respect um, their development and trying to, you know, trying to mitigate as much, you know, trauma as possible or or being at least like being on the lookout for it. Right. So I don't want to like undermine the responsibility that we have And, you know, I don't say should too often, but like, I feel like we should have in society with, with, uh, raising children and their well-being. That being said though, when people use kids as an excuse like
4: that, what's her name?
3: Who, who quote tweeted?
4: Abigail Schreier. uh, So Abigail
3: doesn't care about kids. And I'll tell you why, because she's tweeting on an iPhone that's made by little children slaves in China. And so for her to sit here and, and hide behind the excuse of like, oh, she doesn't talk about the devastation of kids. What about childhood onset diabetes? Like, I mean, there are so many other things that we could um, really put our focus on to stand up for children. And to me, it's just a, uh, it's just a straw man argument to be like, well, oh, what about the kids in divorce? It's like, I'm a product of divorce. But there's no way I wanted my mom and dad to stay together. Right. Like, yeah, there's a piece of me that wishes I had great parents and that they worked well together, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. And for them to stay together just for the sake of me. Um, they would have further traumatized
1: you. Exactly.
4: And, and the idea there is that you you can't say in some unqualified sense that the mere presence of kids is always an unquestionable justification for two people to stay together without considering yeah. the details of that situation. And also what I get what you're saying when you say she doesn't care about kids no. is rather like no one passes the purity test if we allow for that kind of analysis. Right. And you know, I'll, I'll just say one last thing about social media. One of the things that's tough is that you can always say more, and the ability to say anything at all requires you to accept the risks that are inherent and not having the capacity to say everything. At some point, you got to finish the article, you got to finish the book, you got to finish the song, you got to finish the tweet, and what's going to happen when you finish? Somebody's going to come along and say, hey, you could have said more. Yeah, but creativity is impossible when you can't stop.
1: Yes, I think some of my favorite novels are from David Foster Wallace, and they're all famously unfinished. His first novel, The Broom of the System, literally finishes (laughs) mid-sentence. And you realize that there's a resolution, but it happens somewhere to the right of the frame, so to speak, or outside the pages of the book. Sam Harris refers to people like Abigail as grievance entrepreneurs. Yeah, Recreational outrage is another. Yes, because... This type of person is looking for something to be outraged Mm -hmm. by, right? In fact, their Twitter career depends on that outrage, Look how
3: virtuous I am.
1: I'm thinking of someone who responded. I, I retweeted someone who had some quote from one of our Netflix films. And it was a fairly innocuous quote about living simply or whatever. I just retweeted it. And someone responds to that. And I recognized the person who, re- who tweeted, who I retweeted, their name had their pronouns in it. It said like she, her in their bio, right? And the person who responded didn't respond to the tweet. They said, I hate when people use pronouns. <laughs> <laughs> and so first off, I wanted to respond and say, well, you don't understand the English language because right. we have to use pronouns. Otherwise, right. I would say, I would say, hey, Ryan went. Ryan got into Ryan's car to go to the store to buy Ryan some deodorant because Ryan needed deodorant for Ryan's armpits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I'm not allowed to use pronouns, then I'm not allowed to talk to you. And so <laughs> what, what these people do is they have a particular viewpoint and they want to exclude everyone else that doesn't align within the the parameters of theirs. And I'm all for you having your own opinion, beliefs, preferences, ideologies, even. If you cling to them tightly, though, you start to lose your mind. Yeah.
3: And it's funny because that person doesn't hate pronouns. They hate not being able to assume someone else's pronouns, mm-hmm. which says a lot more about that person than it does the
4: the she her that you quoted. Right. <laughs> Last thing about the retweets of the Dr. Nicole tweet. I do think it is absolutely a needed and helpful conversation to talk about what love and marriage really is about and what it could be about and approaching it in a way that allows people to have healthier marriages, healthier love relationships and not look at divorce as some flippant casual thing. Divorce really does have huge consequences on family, on finances, on children, on mental health. And so I think if there is a healthy way to avoid it, I'm all about fighting for the marriage. However, that does not contradict at all Dr. Nicole's tweet. No. That's just a separate thing and it looks like that viewpoint was sort of attached to a tweet that wasn't saying what the quote tweet implies it was saying.
3: It's just for me like I'm the, the root of like me getting kind of heated about this is like people I don't know, when they want to participate in recreational outrage, they don't reply to the essence of something.
1: They deliberately misunderstand what you're
3: communicating. Yes. In order
1: to fit their agenda.
3: Right. It's more about like, what do I want to say about the mental health industry? Here's the point I want to make. And I can twist this tweet to fit the point that I want to make rather than looking at the essence of what the tweet is saying. And that is... Well, that's social media. I mean, that's, that's, that's happening right now as we talk. Well, the scary
4: part to me is I don't even know if these kinds of misunderstandings are deliberate. That's what's scary to me. Well, I, I, yeah. I think I would feel safer if it was all deliberate. That would make people a lot more predictable, a lot more controllable, a lot easier to dismiss as trolls. But I, I think it's much more complex than that. I think these types of misunderstandings are very, very common and normal. Well, the, the deliberateness behind it is the
3: recreational outrage part. Yes. Like they are deliberately hmm. trying to say, look at me, I'm disagreeing with someone. Mm-hmm. And here's why I disagree with them. And like that, that's the deliberate part. Yeah, you're right. Like they probably, and, and we'll give, um we'll give her the, Abigail, the benefit of the doubt that like, maybe she did miss the essence of that tweet. You know, maybe she didn't deliberately misuse the quote, but she 100% deliberately is saying, look at me and look at the children. And yeah, which is, and I think the deliberate part for me is it
1: requires a carcass. Mm. And what I mean by that is in order for me to get my point across, I need to drag a yeah. dead body into yeah. this. Look, I've killed your point yeah. and thus by proxy killed you Yeah, by dragging you out here on, I mean, they even call it, Oh, he got dragged on Twitter. He got dragged on social media, mm-hmm. right? And so I need to drag your carcass into this discussion. I need to prove that I've killed it. You know it's like a reverse version of the the trolley problem, whereas instead of pulling the <laughs> lever, you kill the conductor and throw them in front of the train. right oh And it stops the uh, the it, it becomes virtuous right. But there's no virtue in this whatsoever. Mm, no, it's just not at all airing your grievance for the sake of being aggrieved,
4: yeah. Hey, man, I would like to talk with Dr. Abigail. Or not Dr. Abigail. i like to talk with her live. Yeah. We got to
1: get her on the show, Alabama. Mm-hmm.
6: Making a note.
1: Amass it or trash it. This is a little segment we do where people send in their things and they say, hey, should I keep this? Should I let it go? You can send us your amass it or trash it segments podcast at theminimalists.com. Also, we have a couple other segments, obsolete objects. If you're dealing with anything in your life that has become obsolete, or if you have an impulse purchase, something you imp- you impulse purchased recently, and you're like, oh, why did I do that? Or you saw it at a checkout line. You're like, oh, should I buy it? Should I not? Why do I feel compelled to buy it? Send those in, podcast at theminimalists.com. Looks like Kelly has something for us. Let's put this picture up on the screen. If you're watching the video version, you'll see Kelly's item.
6: So this ambassador Trash It comes from Kelly, and she says, My dear uncle, to whom I was very close, passed in 2016. He was cremated, and my aunt each gave us, nieces and nephews, a three-inch urn with a portion of his ashes. What is a respectable way to let this go? It's sealed so that I can't access the ashes to spread them anywhere. But I appreciate your
3: insight. You uh, just you just put it on the end of the table with a little trash can, at the end, and you accidentally—oops! <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, this is, this is really hard to let go of. In fact, yeah, you let go of your your mom's ashes. You had a little urn.
1: Yeah, it was also sealed. And so here's one of the stories we tell ourselves: like, oh, I can't open it up. Right. Well, yeah, it's like it's permanently sealed. It's a sarcophagus, right? No, of course it's accessible. It's just difficult to access. Right. I remember when I was young, Jerome, my brother, and I—we had this uh, little piggy bank, you know, the one—the kind that you have to break open in order to get the quarters out. We had had one quarter in it, and Jerome smashed it with a hammer, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we got our quarter back. Oh. Well, first off, this urn isn't really aesthetically pleasing, so that's the first problem that I have. <laughs> and so it, it doesn't even seem to honor the person in my view. But of mm-hmm. course, that the intention here was to honor the person. Mm-hmm. But I think we get confused. We think the essence of that person, the soul of that person, the memories of that person are in this urn. Obviously, mm-hmm. they are not. So what I did with my unopenable urn is I found a way to get the ashes out of it mm-hmm. and get them into a bag. And then I spread the ashes For my mom in in a park in in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, that doesn't mean that she now exists within that park. And she's, I I like to believe she's haunting people (laughs) in in the park to this day. (laughs) (laughs) But I decided to let go. Now, am I telling you, Kelly, to let go of these ashes? No, but you're clearly writing in because you're having some sort of struggle here. Yeah. You don't feel like. You want to hold on to this. There are some things my mom's I still have and I want to hold on to. Mm -hmm. She has this hat box, which has some photos in it. And I have that. And I have a couple other sentimental items. And those things add value to my life. And they're not watered down by 100,000 different trinkets that actually get in the way. So it sounds to me, because this is causing some sort of mental or emotional clutter for you, Mm -hmm. that it is actual clutter. It's getting in the way. Yeah. And that's why I would let it go,
3: yeah i I agree man, like I don't know I've never had to deal with ashes, so' easy for me to give advice on or to give an observation on but I do think that ceremonies are important, and you know you can look at them and be like oh, they're just silly and traditions whatever that's silly, but I mean they cultures use these things as a reason mm-hmm. for a good reason because um it can help put. Uh, an end to thing. It can help like really mark something. So if it was me, like I would probably like ceremoniously like you spread your mom's park in the ashes like, you know, where you were born and uh, the park you used to play in when you were a kid. So That's there's right. there's like a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, uh, like an imagery that like you're using to kind of put a close yes. on put a close on, on, on that chapter. So, and it was also
1: going back to Nicole's book. It was a sensory experience. I put music on, uh, there was a CD that I listened to repeatedly when I was with my mom in her last few months on earth At uh, Daniel Martin Moore. And so I I played that while I spread the ashes. And there was also the sensory experience of, uh, walking in the grass, barefoot and, The smell of the park, the flowers, the time of year. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that is far more memorable for me than any of the supposed
4: memories that might be lurking in this urn. Yeah. I think about one of my favorite lines uh, from the documentary, and I'm going to let you quote it so I can hear it in your voice. So I give you the first half Our memories are not in our things. Our memories are inside us. You see, it's possible to
1: let go of a thing and still retain the memories that are in that thing. Now, you can take photos of some things because it is true that sometimes our things can trigger the memories, but the memories will never be in that thing. They'll
4: always be inside us. Yeah, and I think the application here is that your uncle is not in those ashes. He lives inside of your heart and everything that you stand for and in the life that you choose to live and in the way that you choose to embody his legacy from here on out. I agree with Ryan to ritualize it because that will make it easier for you to let go and pay him homage. But I would find a way to get that unsealed. Mm. I would maybe take it to the people who did seal it, take it to the professionals. If they can't do it themselves, Mm. they can tell you how to do it. You're not the first person who's encountered this problem and I would let it go. Yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, we did this with Mariah's uh, grandmother. She lived to be 102. Wow! And uh, we were just in Montana over the summer, and um, yeah, her her Mariah's mom had her her mom's ashes or Mariah's grandma's ashes, and we sat there and like, we, you know, we uh, there's like a little grave site, and we had a nice little ceremony and paid respect and like and you know thinking about that, like it feels really good to like honor her grandmother in that way. Um, but no one in the family is wishing that they would have kept some of
4: grandma's ashes. Well, you just brought that idea up. Like, it's possible to bury that without unsealing it too, right? Is that a possibility? Yeah, Yeah, Uh, absolutely. We did
6: that with my grandmother. That was the way that we chose to honor her.
1: Yeah. We got a sucky ad for you today. Looks like, uh, this isn't really an ad per se, but Matt wrote in and he had an insight. Alabama. So sorry. What do you got for us? So Matt wrote in, he has an insight about advertisements. Sounds like Mm. the Stoic philosopher Epictetus had problems with advertisements. Mm.
6: Here's what he wrote in. He said, I'm beginning my education in Stoicism, and I know you guys have delved into this philosophy as well. I just came across a quote from Epictetus, and he also believed that advertisements sucked. He said, you become what you give your attention to. If you yourself don't choose what thoughts and images you expose yourself to, someone else will.
1: That's right. And that's the biggest problem I have with advertisers. When I say advertisements suck, it's not that I think, it's not a moral stance. Mm -hmm. I don't think people who advertise are evil or bad. I think that the problem with advertisements is it changes the dynamics of the creation to need to aggregate your eyeballs because if I get more eyeballs onto my newspaper, if I get more eyeballs onto my website, if I get more eyeballs onto my podcast or my TV show or this series or this radio program, if I get more ears listening to this podcast, then what happens? I can sell you more stuff. I can make you feel more inadequate. I can make you feel incomplete and whenever I make you feel just incomplete enough that you keep listening I provide the solution uh, to that incompleteness. Yeah. And I think that's what Epictetus was hinting at 2500 years ago is that whatever you pay attention to well that is your most precious resource. Let's not squander it.
3: Yeah. The issue with ads is like it's the manipulation and it's funny because even if you're manipulating someone to do something that you think is good for them, like it's still manipulation and manipulation is not consent. Um, but yeah, I mean, is there is there ever a way like what do you think TK? is there a, is there a way to use manipulation and it be a good thing or be a I don't mean
4: good as a virtuous, but like a helpful thing. I wouldn't use manipulation and good thing in the in the same sentence, even though you probably could literally get away with a technical definition for manipulation that allows that. Mm. But it just has too many negative connotations attached to it. I would say influence
3: yeah. can be okay. used
4: for good. And we're all exercising influence to some degree in everything we do and say. But what makes influence manipulation is when we become attached to outcomes in such a way that we do not respect people's freedom to decline or dismiss what it is we're offering. But there's nothing wrong with me saying, hey man, I'm gonna go have lunch at this place. Would you guys come with me? That's an attempt to influence you guys to co-create an experience with me that I selfishly want. What makes it healthy is there's an understanding here that if you both say, no, I've got something else to do, we're still cool. What right. makes it unhealthy is if I'm like, well, you guys aren't good friends and I try to stick a knife in your side when you say, no, you don't mm. want to do it,
3: you know? Dude, so uh, people aren't influencers, they're manipulators. Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> I'm a social media manipulator. Yeah, much. <laughs> I mean, but it is.
3: It's more manipulation than it is influence. Yeah, anyway. yeah and uh, attention grabbing, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And the irony of this is like, We get a lot of attention on this podcast, right? A lot of eyeballs, a lot of ears listen to the podcast. But as soon as you need it in order to make someone else feel inadequate, I think that is the most pernicious thing about advertising Mm. is creating that false sense of inadequacy. I think it ruins a lot of lives. It makes people feel like they're not attractive enough. Hmm. They're not young enough. They're not smart enough. They're not compelling enough. Mm -hmm. They're not joyous enough. They're not happy enough. They're not experiencing enough peace in their lives. But if you just buy this product for (laughs) $19.99, you will get everything that you don't have right now. And of course, when you do it, what happens is you actually do get a burst of dopamine, generally, Hmm. a little bit of pleasure. It feels good. so I guess I'll buy a little bit more because that felt a little good and I bought more and it didn't feel as good and I bought more and it actually kind of felt bad, but maybe I need to buy even more and all this feels awful. And then I get the credit card statement and, oh my God, what have I done? I've gone into debt and I've made myself miserable. Well, no, you've made yourself miserable because you bought into the people who were misleading you, who were manipulating you. Yeah. These advertisers, they wanted your attention. Not so they could add value to your life, but so they could manipulate in y- you into giving you, giving them your money
4: for their product or service. Yeah. I, I, can I say something here? Like, I think it's important to make a distinction between advertisements and the products and services that are being advertised. It's possible to have a really good helpful service or product and have a sucky ad for it, right? Totally agree. Um, And advertisements can be manipulative, malicious and unhealthy in a way that doesn't reflect the beauty of this human expression of creativity that the advertisement is trying to imperfectly point you to. It's kind of like if I go watch a horror movie and I say that horror movie sucked. Well, that's not a criticism of the human creativity that made an attempt to tell a story. I want to fight for that right. You know, The fact that we try to tell a story Uh, is a really good thing. I don't want that to become illegal or go away. But that particular artifact, that expression of human creativity sucked. I have the right to have that opinion. And most of what we look at, these artifacts call ads, they fall short actually of the beautiful expression of human creativity that is often expressed through the services and products that they try to point us to.
1: Yeah, and the reason they fall short is because they're seductive. And so to be seductive, the essence of that means to promise more than you can ever deliver. Yeah, That's what seduction does. And we like that in certain contexts. We like to be seduced, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, But that seduction is promising more. And then so when I don't get what I thought you were promising me through your advertisement, it actually ruins the product that may have otherwise added value to your life. Because I thought I was going to get so much more from it. During our added value segment today, I've got my favorite piece of clothing. We'll talk about. It's not an advertiser. I have no idea. You know, I have no connection with the company, but I can talk about it in a way where I'm not saying this is going to improve your life. I think mm-hmm. it's going to make you a better, faster, smarter, uh, whatever. It simply adds value to my life, and I can't promise you whether or not it'll add any value to yours. In fact, it might become cluttery because it might just get in the way. Yeah. We got another little segment we like to do called the. Minimalist Home Tour segment, the Photo Friday Home Tour. Every Friday, we send subscribers to the video version of our podcast, a photo with a title. We actually sent two photos on Friday. I'm calling this uh, this piece of art here. I took the photos. Girl, don't try to fight it. I'm so icy. I'm quoting the great Stoic philosopher Gucci Main from 2005. Gucci man, Gucci man, dude. Is she wincing? I can't see her face from here. Let's describe this for the people who are watching the or listening to the audio version of the podcast. So, in this photo, you have oh, yeah. Bex's in my backyard, <laughs> and you have an ice bath here. A company called Mozoko. yeah, Morozco, I think they're called. I don't know. Certainly not a sponsor of the podcast, but uh, Morozco. Uh, we bought this recently. I've enjoyed ice baths for many years now, ever since Ryan and I started going to uh, these different like saunas that had ice baths sort of connected to them. But then I started understanding the benefits of cold and taking cold showers every day. So in this photo, you've got ella who is getting into this ice bath which is set to 34 degrees it's really cold it's the coldest in fact it's forming ice now finally so like this machine makes its own ice now you don't need to have an elaborate ice bath like this there are are things like the ice barrel, which you can buy for your backyard and mm-hmm. just you just put a 100 pounds of ice in it. This is what I used to do in my bathtub. Mm-hmm. I'd go buy 70 pounds of ice and just put it in the bathtub mm. and you spend two to five minutes in there. So I've been doing this every day. In fact, even this morning at 4.30 a.m., Bex and I went outside and dipped our heads in the cold plunge and it will wake you up immediately. So I tend to do this first, first thing in the morning. You can see me here in the cold cold plunge. It's the only time you'll ever see a photo of me with my shirt off. Uh, Actually, I was completely naked in this photo. You can't see the other parts that are submerged. (laughs) Prove it. (laughs) It's just really cold, I swear. (laughs) I mean, it really was really cold. It's 34 degrees. And there is a particular joy, elation, euphoria, a resetting of the nervous system that happens from The cold plunge. Well, your body thinks you're dying.
3: Yes. And then when it realizes like, oh, I'm alive, it's like, I'm alive.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not dying. Okay. Is that healthy? So put your body through that. Yeah. Yeah, Not
1: not just healthy, but the science behind it is remarkable. So not only is it healthy, it is, it does everything from, I mean, there are now case studies Mm -hmm. of people who have cured their leukemia from prolonged cold exposure.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we just got this uh, case study the other day of someone, and he didn't even do it with an ice bath. He went swimming in the Willamette River mm. over in Oregon every day when it was icy. And you realize that there are a lot of evolutionary, evolutionarily consistent uh, benefits that you're getting because we used to be exposed to cold and hot all the time and now it's just well it's it's not 72 degrees in here I need to turn on the air conditioning or I need Mm -hmm. to turn on the heat because I need to be exactly 72 degrees all the time and we've comforted ourselves to death yeah we don't expose ourselves to the cold and so Mm. not only do you feel this incredible euphoria but you throughout the rest of the day you feel this reset in your nervous system yeah it calms you down and so the benefits are tremendous uh, especially if, when you pair something like this with a breathing practice, mm. and you don't need a fancy ice bath. Like, in fact, this one isn't even like a real fancy one. I wanted to do what Tony Robbins did. You know, oh, he, yeah. he has like a little ice pool in his
3: yard. Yeah, but then- it's like a like four by four square.
1: Yeah. And seven feet deep. Yeah. It, it looks like a, it's just a little pool. He jumps in and backs looked at the price. And it was like $25,000 to do something like that. Wow. And we we're like, no, we'll just go ahead and buy the, we, now yeah. the one we got is nice. It makes its own ice mm-hmm. and all you have to do is plug it in and fill it up with water. And it has ozone filter in it. Mm-hmm. As you can see in the photos here, it's, But it's convenient. The thing I like about it is this is something I do every day. And while I wouldn't necessarily recommend anyone else buy this, because if you're not going to do it every day, you're going to waste a lot of money Mm -hmm. on something you're not using regularly. Yeah. And so I would, if anything, try the cold shower first if you're even considering doing something like this. And if that works really well for you for a prolonged period of time, then maybe start doing ice baths in your home. Go buy 70 pounds of ice for a few dollars mm-hmm. and do that ice bath and see how you feel afterward. See how long you can tolerate, how long you can work up. The mm-hmm. longest I've ever done in a cold plunge is 10 minutes, mm-hmm. but it takes a while to work up to,
3: to something like that because yeah. you feel like you're about to die. So you just lay in the ice. Yeah. Well, yeah, you just sit in there. So, uh, what the you got to come over? What the cold plunge does too is it puts your body in like a fight or flight state. So, like it boosts your immunity and releases cortisol, like the good cortisol, because your your body has to do something; otherwise, it flights. You know, so That's why. Wanna- that's why it, it kind of helps a little bit with the with the immune system. Fascinating, Beck, You want to
1: step up to the microphone? We got Beckshur here, my wife. She's been doing cold plunge. She she's actually doing it way longer than I am so far. What uh, what benefits are you experiencing from doing it so far?
7: Uh, well, you actually talked about the main one, which uh-huh. is after you're done, my nervous system just feels like it's like down regulated or down shifted. And you a have a bunch. hyper
1: uh, dysregulated nervous yeah, system. Yeah,
7: yeah. I feel agitated a lot. Uh-huh. Not anxious, but uh-huh. like just feel hyped yeah, yeah, and so it it calms calms me down. I really like it. Um I also really have grown to enjoy the process of calming down in the water. yeah, like instead of, I remember that the first time you got in it, you were like shivering uncontrollably, yes, almost instantly. Uh-huh. And it was just like, oh, you're panicking, right. Um And so learning to calm that panic. As quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And to, you know, three, four or five days in, it's like not panic at all. Yeah. You know, it's just like, okay, it's fine. It's okay. You're not going to (laughs) die.
1: She was in it yesterday for over four minutes and she was just lying down. She had her head on a pillow, lying down in the ice. And it looked like it was a hot tub the way she was lying. And it was really impressive. Thank you, Bex.
7: You're welcome.
1: You can check out her podcast. It's called How to Love, wherever you listen to podcasts. So that is our Photo Friday home tour. TK, we'll have to get you to come out, yeah. jump in the ice bath, sit in there for a while, see how it feels. Let's check in with the Patreon lives, live stream here.
6: Ice, babe.
1: <laughs> we I should have a- been
4: playing in the background.
6: Should have. We have a question here from Marvette. She says, I'm single and about to turn 45. I have personal joy and happiness, and I'm not looking for anyone to complete me. But I still deeply desire a romantic, intimate relationship at this point in my life. I'm tired of being told, you don't need a relationship to be happy. Can you offer a different perspective?
1: You don't need a relationship to be happy is true. Yeah. However, a relationship can amplify whatever's going on in your life. there's a whole lot of misery in your life, it's a terrible time to get into a new relationship. Mm -hmm. But I say this from past experience. If there's a whole lot of pain in your life, it could be a difficult time to get into a new relationship. Mm -hmm. However, if you're at a place in your life right now where you're experiencing joy and, and peace and tranquility, not all of the time, that's mania, but if you feel like you are in a place of acceptance and abundance, If you open yourself up to the relationships, not renouncing them, but also not grasping for them, not needing the relationship. I found Bex at a time when I was not looking for a relationship, and I found that was the best time. And I think, Ryan, you were in a similar scenario with Mariah, Mm. where if you felt like you needed to be in a relationship right now, Mm -hmm. there's a particular kind of clinging that comes along with that. And it extracts the joy from the relationship. What's the questioner asker's name? What's her name?
6: Uh, her name is Marvette.
1: Marvette. You're at a place right now where if you're in the best place for a new relationship. As long as you don't feel like you need the relation relationship to
4: make you happy. There was a guy who uh, went to visit this guru and he says, hey, teacher, I have a problem. And the guru says, oh, but that is the problem because your problem is a manifestation of God. Embrace that. And the guy said, that's cool. But my desire to change the problem is also a manifestation of God. And i like to embrace that. And, <laughs> and, and, I, and I like the moral of that story because, look, you don't need a relationship to make you happy, but you also don't need to go out of your way to avoid being in a relationship to make you happy. You don't need to renounce relationships to make you happy. You don't need to take a vow of celibacy to make you happy. You don't need to be a monk or a nun in order to be happy, right? Like you are free to live your life in any way that is an expression of your authenticity, getting into a relationship or getting out of a relationship. Mm. And so you are completely free. And I would encourage you to give yourself complete permission to delight yourself in the company of others and to entertain and to consider all of the possibilities of that life as they present themselves to you and as you are capable of creating them and manifesting them through the way that you interact with the world. You don't need to run away from relationships to be happy. I
1: think the obverse of that is completely true as well. It's possible to be a monk and be utterly miserable. It's possible to be a hedonist and be utterly miserable. It's possible to have 15 different relationships that, quote unquote, should be fulfilling and actually feel drained from those relationships. So just because you're doing something you feel like you should be doing and not getting the result, well, if you're not getting the result that you want, then I'm. A, you don't have to run away from it, but you can turn around and walk in the other direction. Yeah. Who else we got questions from, Alabama?
6: We have a question here from Yaman. I grew up in a household that promoted always having a backup plan, like getting a college degree before pursuing a passion. While I don't think it's the worst idea, can you speak to the mindset switch from constantly focusing on having a solid plan B so you can confidently commit to a plan A? Do you think it's a good idea?
3: That's that, that's such a weird concept to me because I would think you'd find a plan A and commit to that. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, you know, maybe there's a plan B in case plan A doesn't work out. But it's it, I don't know, it's fascinating to think yeah. about the mindset of like, oh let me focus on my secondary plan before I focus on my my my, my real plan. I yeah. don't know yeah, talk yeah. about the education
4: system, TK <laughs> <laughs> You can fire that up Come anytime. On, hit it. I'm like, yeah, let me explain <laughs> why the education system is the cause of all this. <laughs> no you know sometimes we we put one foot in and we put one foot out and we say, well I'm just gonna I'm gonna be ha- I'm gonna half ass it. Just in case it fails, at least, you know, half of me will already be over here waiting on the failure. But then we fail to consider the fact that we might be increasing the probability of failure by not being all in with what we really want to do. And Mm. so we often create these self-fulfilling prophecies. Oh, I really like this person. I really like this job. I really like this dream. But instead of giving my best self to it, I'm going to reserve at least 50% of myself. That way, if I end up being disappointed, only 50% of me is disappointed. And you just create this pattern of being half-assed about everything that you do and only going halfway with your dreams. I think it's perfectly appropriate to say, I'm going to go all in with the things that I want to do and give it my best shot. Also, this idea of the backup plan, it's kind of based in an illusion. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a backup plan doesn't change the fact that every decision that you make comes with risk. And, and, and so there's sort of this illusion that, oh, if I have a backup plan, then I'm now eliminating the risk that's involved with that. Ooh, and that's not true at all. Yeah. The risk is always going to be there, right? Like, what's your backup plan for your backup plan? Right. What, what, what's your plan for if the backup plan turns out to be more depressing than you thought or more difficult to achieve than you thought? What's your backup plan for that? Now we got the problem of infinite regress. You need a backup plan for the backup plan for the backup plan. How about you just accept the fact that life comes with uncertainty and that the ultimate backup plan is to be committed to who you really are and to trust your ability to improvise and learn from every failure and make the best of it with the knowledge that you acquire from experience? That's the best backup plan. Yeah. The best backup plan is you. Yeah.
3: And Yvonne, like, this is not a judgment at all on a backup plan. Like, if you want to have a backup plan, great, that's fine. But, um, but yeah, just know that, like, this is us, uh, I, if anything, I relate with it because I think about, you know, like, I don't know, like, what if all of a sudden the, uh, the minimalists aren't the minimalists anymore and I have to go do something? It's like, oh, I could see myself being like a teacher, you know, mm-hmm. what if that doesn't work out? I could see myself like, you know, selling Toyotas or something, like something that I really believe in. So like, I have those thoughts, but that's not what makes me feel secure about what I do today. That's Those are just like random
4: thoughts that I have. To me, that reveals though, that there's no such situation as not having a backup plan then. Mm. Everyone has one. Your backup plan might be specific. I'll go work at that job. I'll be an accountant at that firm. Or it might be more general. Like, uh, there are about 20 different things that I can do. I don't know which one of them I'll choose, but if this doesn't work out, I'll go try something else. But you're either trusting in your creativity, your imagination, your hard work, your character, or you're trusting in some specific opportunity. There's nothing wrong
1: with having a backup plan. No. No. I want to be clear about that. There is nothing wrong with having a backup plan, but needing a backup plan all of a sudden can take away from your dreams, from your pursuit. It's like saying, I want to get married, but only if I have a side chick. Mm. It's like, well, wait a minute. What is, is, if you want to do that, that's fine. Girl, you
3: ain't the only one trying to be the only one.
4: That's that's like Floyd Mayweather, one is too close to zero. Oh, dude. (laughs)
3: And
1: and so, if you need the backup plan, I think quite often what happens is the backup plan can get in the way Mm. of what your actual pursuit is, right? Now, thinking we even need to pursue one thing can be a problem for us, right? But now, thinking you have multiple pursuits that are tearing you in different directions. Can you see how debilitating that can be? I'm supposed to do this and I'm supposed to do this. Well, no, there are no supposed
3: tos, but now I feel like I'm being torn in two different directions. Especially when it's a four-year commitment. I mean, I got my college degree. It was, it was my backup plan. Um, I mean, that college degree might come in handy with plan Z, you know? I mean, maybe it would, but like, it was... I mean, I'm glad I finished my degree because uh there was something well the completionist in me was very happy with it <laughs> also um I'm like the only member of my family and in, in my immediate family to like even have a degree um and I did it at like 30 years old so like I mean there, there's a lot of like lessons that I learned but it wasn't the actual piece of paper or even the classes that I attended it was more of the commitment that I made like that's how I look at the college degree but if I could go back and tell my 25 year old self I'd be like buddy you don't need it like you don't yeah you don't really need it you know? yeah Alabama, let's do one more. Mm.
6: We got one more. We'll ask a question on behalf of Catherine. There's a college under confinement right now due to a dangerous person, and it's been happening a lot lately. I am safe, but Canada is not known to deal with these kinds of violent situations. How can we confront the anxiety that comes from traumatic events?
3: Hey, if you want the American dream, you got to have it all. You can't just have the good parts of it. Oh, my gosh! <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> This is
1: this is like this is the doom scrolling or or the dread scrolling that we were talking about yeah. earlier, right? Where the likelihood of you being killed in some sort of mass shooting, which yeah. is what we're talking about here, yeah, ultimately, while those things are truly awful, the likelihood of that happening is so minuscule, and that's not to minimize it for the people that happens too. To be clear it's awful. It's horrible when those things happen. But you're much more likely to die on your way to work today or this year than you are from one of these things that actually produce far more anxiety. One might argue, however, that your driving also gives you a lot of very low-level anxiety that we don't really tune into because we're not in tune with our bodies. And so we just experience that anxiety and move on. And then these new events that yeah. pop up that increase the anxiety, now all of a sudden we we see that anxiety, but it could actually be stemming from somewhere completely different. Yeah.
3: I'm glad you're safe. That's thats first and foremost important. And there are things we do to make sure we're safe. Um, when we get in a car, we wear a seatbelt. Um, if we wanted to be extra safe, we would are, we would wear a helmet. I mean, studies show that, you know, out of the, you know, percentage of people who, uh, pass away in car accidents, 50% of them, they were wearing a helmet, no, 50% of them (laughs) would still be alive if they were wearing a helmet. So, I I mean, there are, uh, you can take the precautions to whatever degree you want to, but, you know, ultimately you can't prepare for every accident or every tragedy. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, you know, if you're staying at home and you're, you know, being safe in this situation, great. Like that's,
4: That's outstanding. And like I said, I'm glad you're safe. Yeah. There's a huge distinction between the information you need in order to know how to prepare and the information you need in order to know or imagine all the different possibilities of how something evil and bad may happen. Hey, there's a bad man on the loose. Uh Oh, what do I need to do? Lock your doors. You know, like come in early, go to bed early, da, 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 da. Okay, cool. I need that information. Thank you for letting me know. Hey, because listen, if this bad man gets a hold of you, let me tell you all the thousands of things he might do to you. Mm. No, no, no. Let's stop there. Right? (laughs) Let's stop there. Let's put a lid on it right there. I know I need to lock my doors, go in early and follow steps, you know, Mm -hmm. A, B, and C. But please don't feed my imagination all of these different things about how bad I'm going to get it. Don't let your imagination be a breeding ground for fear. Put a boundary on how much of this stuff you're going to consume. I imagine you need to be aware of some of it in order to know how to prepare, but make up your mind ahead of time at what point you're gonna stop listening to that so that you can not only be prepared, but so that you can put your attention on other things because it increases the psychological sense of probability when you're just Mm. feeding into it. In fact, I noticed this even myself. I love true crime. And on those nights where I'm listening to a true crime documentary or a true crime podcast, anything that happens, I instinctively respond with suspicion. I hear a sound. Someone walks past my door or someone knocks outside my door. I'm like, a killer. (laughs) Probably that's not the case. But psychologically, it sure feels like it. Why? Because of what I'm feeding my mind at that time.
1: Yeah. Mm. What you feed your mind will often dictate your behavior. It's like when Ryan and I went to go see Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift (laughs) and we're doing donuts in the parking lot after. We don't even realize we're doing it. We're just spinning around repeatedly. (laughs) We did go see that movie,
3: didn't we? Uh, No, I've never seen that movie. (laughs) I went went and saw it with another friend. You remember our... What? What? (laughs) <laughs> Don't worry. It didn't mean anything. I thought about you the whole time. <laughs> you have a no, side, it's, it's have our a side fri- friend. It's our friend from high school, our mutual friend from high school who loves to have loud mufflers on their car and drive fast. Hi, Pacho. He always talks about turbos. Um, you remember our other friend, though, who lived next to the Warren County Jail? Uh, which one, McKibben? Yeah, yeah. So he, um, every once in a while, prisoners would escape from there. <laughs> That's right. Oh my <laughs> oh. god!
1: He lives in a really nice house, really next nice to house. A prison.
3: Yeah, next to a prison. What? There's some kind of metaphor there, but um, I just remember like him just t- saying how uh, like uh, there was one particular so prisoners would escape. And then they get phone calls or someone goes door to door. I don't know. But they're like, lock your doors. Prisoner escaped. Be on the lookout. You have a really nice house in a really nice neighborhood. They're probably going to target a place like this because it's right next to the jail. Um, But he was saying how uh, like one time he was home alone and like somebody was knocking on the door and like a prisoner had just escaped. And he's like in the closet. You're describing home alone the movie. I know, right? (laughs) He set up a bunch of... He heated up the handle with a torch
4: <laughs> he sat some toy caught some toy cars and right, by exactly. the front door. He prisoner like, walks in and trips.
3: Come on in. <laughs> no, it was like his sister's friend or something freaking him out. Anyway.
1: For our added value segment this week, Ryan, it's my favorite piece of clothing. I'm gonna take it off right now. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. my belt. Nice. <laughs> you no. know what I like about this belt? Is there's no holes on it. In fact, it is called the next belt. Next Belt Ratchet Belt, and it is the tagline is the belt with no holes. No way. Yes. That's the the tagline. Right. Genius. And and so what I really like about this is throughout the day, if you eat more and you're feeling a little full and your midsection needs a little extra space, so it's it's a ratchet belt. So you can hear it on the microphone here if you're just listening to the podcast. That's pretty cool. And so it's tight, and I'm like, oh, I ate too much. You just hit the little button here while it's on your waist. You don't have to fiddle around with anything. You just hit the button, and... Bandit. It's so nice.
6: <laughs> Can we get some ASMR of that round again? <laughs> yeah,
1: right. <laughs> Thanks okay. for sharing your belt with us. And Beck said it's also very easy to take off, but only if you know how to take off. Otherwise, it's impossible. You're like, how the hell do I get this thing off, right? One one more time. Here we go. Here we go. Listen. Listen to the smooth sounds of the next belt.
6: <laughs> oh, God, that's so <laughs>
1: satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... um. Why is it my favorite piece of clothing? And it could be superfluous for someone. A lot of people, like our friend Leo Balta, he doesn't wear a belt. And I went several years without wearing a belt. And I just found that I enjoy wearing a belt more than life without it. Hmm. Mainly because I, I need to put all my cell phone on
3: it and my pepper spray. <laughs> <laughs> As everybody knows, it's cool to carry your cell phone on your belt <laughs> next to your pepper spray.
1: Yes. Ooh, Patent pending. No. Cell phone, pepper spray, all in one device.
3: No, cell phone pepper spray gun. <laughs> you might as well get the uh, the janitorial keys on there too. Yeah, so can we get a you jingle on when there you walk too? <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yes, indeed. So Josh if- doesn't even need that many keys. He just likes to carry that many keys on him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you're in need of a new belt and you think this might add value to your life, it certainly has added value oh. to mine. Not a sponsor at all, but we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Big thanks to our guest today, Dr. Nicole LaPera. Yes, she's awesome. Her new book is called How to Meet Yourself. Yes, indeed. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Also, you can follow her on social media. She's known as the holistic psychologist. Millions of people follow her over there. She puts up some great videos on Instagram. And you can check out her podcast. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. That is our maximal episode for today. Three hours of a show. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan O'More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and Rebecca Shearn, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works
3: thanks for listening y'all we'll see you next time season's greetings why'd you say that so angrily <laughs> season's greetings
1: <laughs> keep all
3: that in happy holidays
7: <laughs> every little thing